This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Halloween to you. Hope, uh, hope you're all dressed up, looking great, looking sharp. Uh, a few of us are dressed up today in the studio. Dr. Matt here, along with uh, Jeffrey Liam Simpson and Terry South. You, you, I want you to guess, listeners, which of the three of us is dressed up. Only one. And uh, he's got L.A. Writ on, written on his face. Jeffrey Simpson. You did it, man. You look good. Apparently, I made the mistake of uh, putting my hand on my face, so now I've got L.A. written on my hand, yeah, too. Yeah, I like how you fingerprinted your face. Yeah. All those neat. And if you get really close, yeah. you can tell that the markers are that I used are scented. Did you use... Those are real markers. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. A lot of times, you don't use markers on your face. Not necessarily by choice. It's just what was available. Yeah, I smell the licorice of the black eye stuff, that you, the black eye goo. If you smell really hard... It's actually confidence and winning. Really? Mm-hmm. Is that what that smells like? Mm-hmm. Licorice? Hmm. <laughs> Welcome to the program. Boy, oh boy, another great day. And boy, it's a scary day if you are uh, President Trump. You know? No. Yesterday, he was very clear. None of this has anything to do with him. Well, except they were all on his campaign. That's fine, but it doesn't have anything to do with him. Well, but... Their personal activities don't reflect on him. Yeah, but Papadopoulos uh-huh. he may was, have been he was, wired. And there was one committee. Have... It met once. Very limited access <laughs> to things. That was the press conference yesterday. Oh, is that so. what he's saying? No, that's well, that's what the White yeah, House is that's saying. That's what the White House is saying. Yeah, just like Manafort. Well, minimal impact. He was the chairman. He was the you know campaign chairman. But very minimum, minimal impact. He's only there for three months. But what, but what Clinton than... did was bad. If you watch certain networks, sure. Clinton did bad stuff. Right. We're just going to ride that into the ground. They keep accidentally referring to the Clinton administration. And President Clinton, yes. Yeah. We got a bunch of real dummies. And she, and he did, she didn't win, right? No. He, he won. Right. With, she, with she, a little bit of Paul Manafort's help. She's actually confused. And she had a, a gathering yesterday where yeah. she spoke to some people. And she's like, apparently certain TV networks aren't clear that I lost. Yeah. It's really strange. So. Hmm. I wonder huh. which one that is. Uh, tonight, uh, also, uh, World Series events. Of course, little children will be running around to your door. So make sure you're very careful in how you drive right. and what you give them. I would, of course, just give them fruits and vegetables, maybe a little vegetable tray. And then watch out for the eggs. And then be egged the rest yeah, of the night. It'll be fun. Uh, we'll get to all of that fun celebration, plus uh, more on what's going on with Mueller's investigation. Is that his name? Mueller. It sounds like... It, it sounds like you're saying it wrong. It but sounds yes. like CS... No, what's it called? Uh, uh, it sounds like a spy show. Hmm. Mulder. Yeah, Mulder. Like X-Files. Yeah. X-Files. Ooh. That's, that's a different spy show. That's a different. That's Mulder, not Mueller. If you come to our, if you come to our house tonight. Yeah. We won't give out candy. We'll give out Dodger Ducks. Dodger wow. Ducks. Wow. Well, what kind of is that? A what is that? A dachshund? <laughs> what kind of dog is that? You're giving away dogs. Well, me. there's very little dog in it. So okay. Yeah. I, I, I have neighbors that set up a camp kitchen in their driveway on Halloween. And oh, really? They give out hot dogs. Oh, that's so nice. And then across the street, the people set up like a fire pit in the driveway. Uh huh. And they they have like cider. Wow. And you just go over and hang out and talk to people. I'm like, so you can get a dog across the street cider. Yeah. It's like, it's like they're not quite grasping the fact no. that you're supposed to stop, get candy, and keep moving. Maybe what you ought to hand out are like napkins. 
And maybe, you know, yeah. I don't know, maybe you could have like a condiment area oh. where you just... <laughs> you know what? If you were to hand out napkins, they would give them right back to you and say, you're going to need these for when I egg your house. See, right. you guys are eggers. That's what happens. Violent eggers! The social contract. Candy, <sighs> please. Now. Now. Let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? President Donald Trump spent Monday seething and fuming over a trio of indictments against his former campaign staffers, according to reports from CNN and The Washington Post. Trump reportedly spent much of Monday huddled in the White House living quarters with his lawyers while initially pleased that the indictment against his former campaign manager Paul Manafort did not mention him. Trump reportedly became agitated while watching cable news coverage of the indictments, which he believed inflated the three indicted men's roles in his campaign. Trump's lawyers reportedly warned against criticizing or firing special counsel uh, Robert Mueller, but Trump's former chief strategist Steve Bannon weighed in from beyond the White House to suggest Trump push back against Mueller's investigation. The Washington Post has an inside the White House piece that cites 20 sources. Trump's, Trump digested the news with exasperation and disgust, the story says. It quotes a senior Republican in close contact with top staffers saying, the walls are closing in, everyone is freaking out. Oh, boy. Wow. 20 sources, but you know. Uh, the the, the walls aren't actually closing in. Yeah, it kind of feels like it, apparently. That's scary. And the freaking out part was kind yeah, of fun. Yeah, totally. Uh, an unsealed indictment revealed President Trump's former foreign policy advisor, George Papadopoulos, I've practiced that today, Papadopoulos, Papadopoulos, was charged with making false statements to federal agents and impeding the investigation into possible collusion between Trump, the Trump campaign and Russia because federal investigators like special counsel Robert Mueller tend to work inwards towards central fig- figures. Papadopoulos' indictment particularly of note because it includes references to yet another unnamed campaign aide who was involved in conversations with Kremlin agents. Oh. Papadopoulos was charged with making false statements regarding his contact with a Russian professor who claimed he had dirt on Hillary Clinton during the campaign. Papadopoulos was arrested in July 2017 and has reportedly been cooperating with the FBI. They say they say his records were sealed yeah. because to not seal them would make him would expose him and would not allow him to cooperate. So Jeffrey Tubin, impli- yeah. who's like the judicial Expert on, CNN. Expert on CNN implies that that probably means he was wired. He was wired and carrying mm. a wire. Yeah. So now people are like, "Oh, did I talk to him? Oh. <laughs> when did he have a?" Now, what's interesting is Papadopoulos was first interviewed by the FBI about Russian collusion on January twenty seventh. Yeah. You know what's significant about that day? What? It's also the day President Trump asked former FBI Director James Comey for a loyalty oath in the Oval Office. <laughs> Same day. Did Trump know that Papadopoulos talked to the FBI? He may have. If that's the case, did he talk to the director to say, hey, could you be friends here to stop this? By the way, that reminds me, we are doing loyalty oaths after the show today. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Sounds fun. We haven't haven't done enough of them. Do I have to wear the special armband afterwards? Uh Darn it. Yeah. And we'll be, yeah. It's like a scarlet letter of sorts. And we'll be doing the the thing where we cut your finger and you do a fingerprint in blood. No, we're done. Uh, That's a diabetes test. Yeah. And we'll also spit in our hands and then shake on it. Wow. Now we're doing a DNA test? Yeah, what's that? No, 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 no. No, but by the way, I, did you know that I am yeah. 7% Greek-Italian? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Was... We can still smell the Italian bread. Opa! In other news, approximately 126 million Americans may have viewed Facebook posts by Russian trolls, the social media company wrote in a letter. Those posts authored by a Russian group posing as Americans are believed to have been an attempt to sow discord in the U.S. 
In a letter to the U.S. Uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, Facebook General Counsel Colin Stretch, cool name, has a proper, uh, approximately 28, arm, 20, 29 million Americans had posts via Russian group Internet Research Agency placed on their Facebook pages, and that posts reach approximately 126 million accounts after other users shared them. Originally, uh, Facebook said it was thousands. It was just kind of minimal. Yeah. And the number keeps growing every time so they have to So it's now 124 disclose. million. 126 million. And I guess in the United States. Yeah. So what? That's a third of us? Half of us? Yeah. yeah. To sow discord. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Stretch wrote that the ads were seemingly intended to amplify societal divisions and pit groups of people against each other. Most of the ads appear to focus on divisive social and political messages across the ideological spectrum, touching on topics from race issues to immigration to gun rights. Oh, boy. Google, they'll... Uh, Google, Twitter, and Facebook will all be sitting at a judiciary account, uh, committee hearing oh, with the fine. Senate today by yeah. 2.30 Eastern. Mm. Uh, YouTube, which is Google, uh, they said they found 18 channels on YouTube with roughly 1,100 videos, a total of 43 hours of content uploaded by individuals who were, we suspect are associated with the Russian effort. Twitter hmm. identified 36,000 accounts that generated automated election-related content and had at least one of the characteristics we used to associate with an account in Russia. Remember that movie, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming? No. Well, maybe they are. <laughs> they did. They came. They conquered. So We should be worried. Yeah, all all these should. companies are starting to disclose more as we close in on 2.30 Eastern. But don't you think really the way that like, YouTube works, it was really only like 10 people that watched it like a million times? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. It's just what it was their mom. And yeah. finally, pitchers for both the L.A. Dodgers and the Houston Astros are complaining about the feel of the 2017 World Series baseballs. Ooh. I've heard something about this. The World Series ball is slicker, says Justin Verlander, whose Astros are up 3-2 in the series and who starts on the mound for Game 6 tonight. Wait, why is he complaining? I know. No doubt you know when you uh, sign a receipt a, uh, a receipt, and you don't know, hold the paper down with your hand, and the pen just slides across the paper, and the ink doesn't stick to it. You ever done that when you... Yeah, yeah. You, just, have to, you have to... Yeah. 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 He goes, that's what it's like sometimes trying to sign these balls. So he's actually like, autographing baseballs, yeah. and he's like, these are really slick. That's They're why you use around. a Sharpie. So uh, he says, uh, that's how slick the leather is. While ball-juicing conspiracies are perennial complaint in baseball, they're winding the, the yarn and the twine really tight, making uh-huh. the ball bounce and jump hard, jump more off the, the bat, I guess is the claim they've done in the past. Now they're saying that the balls are slicker, which makes it harder to actually hold on to the ball as you pitch. Yeah. And, and the, the, the proof they're saying is, they're the, still getting uh, a lot of movement in the ball. The astronomical number of home runs, yeah, which usually happens because the baseball doesn't go where you want it to. This is the, the highest number of home runs, game and it's five, not even over. Game five on Sunday had seven home runs. They call them dingers here, but I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous yeah. mm. to use that sort of terminology here. No they, dingers. It's so a humdinger. There's a world record uh, series, or a world series total of 22 home runs, the yeah. record for the World Series. In 2002, World Series previously had the most home runs for a championship series with 21 homers in seven games. That was between the Angels and the Giants. Major League Baseball senior vice president of baseball operations said the league has done nothing to change the baseballs. You know what I think? What? I think the Russians are behind it. You think they're juicing our baseballs? They use a slicker brand of baseball. It's called Sok. Juice is Sok. Have you ever juiced a baseball? Hmm. It's good. New, it's good uh, drinking. Do you remember when we used to juice the baseball players? 
Yes. Back in 2002, the World Series, you just about how many home runs that they were hitting. But now we're sitting down. So who do you hold accountable if you're juicing balls? I don't know. The umpires? Rawlings? Yes. Did did an edict come down from Major League Baseball telling the baseball manufacturers, we want juiced baseballs? No. So they wind them tighter so they explode off the bat, giving an extra five feet. I think the the funny thing is it seems like the pitchers – Still have a lot of movement in their pitches. Mm-hmm. They seem pretty accurate. Yeah. Are they blaming the you know that loose high fastball that somebody cranks to a home run? Are they blaming that, or should they just own the fact that they threw a high fastball? There's some stats <laughs> involving uh, pitcher. It's you Darvish. That's his name, correct? Where mm-hmm. he throws the I think it's the changeup that he throws, and it's. It's not changing. Pretty crazy. It's not. He has no control over it. But all season long. It's been fine, right? He's able to strike people out. It's not a problem. Now he throws and he's like hitting people with it almost. Mm. So. Well, if, you, if you've ever unraveled a baseball, you know that there's a red, hard rubber tootsie ball. Roll. It's a tootsie the, roll, and I think they are replacing it with a tootsie roll pop. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes more sense. How many bites does it take to get to the tootsie roll? Or pop? how many home runs does it take to get to the tootsie roll center of the tootsie roll pop? <laughs> you know what is true, though. Uh, something is wrong with the balls. Hmm. Because if you watch the ball hit off of a line drive foul ball into the crowd, it can easily hit six, seven, or eight people. Wow. It used to only hit five, four. Really? Mm-hmm. So it's more, more – Now act- it's taking out a lot of fans. There's more energy. It's more active as it bounces mm-hmm. off one fan to another. Something's wrong with that Interesting. ball. And if it lands in somebody's nachos or uh, alcoholic beverage, mm-hmm. it has even wider spread. Yeah. Wow. Oh, Yeah. So there's the conspiracy. Great play-by-play. Slick baseball. Tonight they're playing again. That's what I've been told. Game six. And uh, sadly, I've heard uh, it's over tonight. No. It what? could be. Well, if you keep dressing Wrong. like that, you're wearing your BYU Broadcasting baseball jersey. Well, it does say 1-7 on the back. But you're pre- so Dodgers and 1-7. You're pretending to, um, yeah, they'll win one out of seven. Boy, the crowds. They've actually lost fewer games than the Houston Astros in the postseason. Did you know that, Dr. Matt? No. Wow, sounds like you're grasping for stats at that point. Yeah. Um, So what are you doing tonight with the kidlets? Mm. Me? Yes. Trick-or-treating. So go, that'll, go you'll, see, you'll go at 6. We've got to go see Grandma first. Okay. We'll see Grandma oh, first. I have to take, have to take my daughter to my wife's office because. Oh, cute. What, what are she, we dressing her she's up She's a ladybug. As? And what are you going as? A uh, disgruntled father who has to truck the kids all over town all day. You could just go as like a carry a big noodle mm. and put like a big, you know, piece of cardboard on the top of it so it looks like a fly swatter. I could. I could. And then I take the kids to Grandma's house. Cute. And then I bring the kids back. So then go trick-or-treating with the aunt and my wife, apparently, yes. so I can stay home and give away the 400 pieces of candy my wife bought. So you're, you're trick-or-treating at grandparents' house? Yeah. You go over and say, here's our costume. She, nice. she makes like special bags of candy. And, that's great. Yeah, that's great. And your son's going as? Spider-Man. As, okay. he, as he says, Spider-Man, homecoming. Oh, mm. wow. Because the costume has the webbed glider. Ooh. Attachments. Are you going to let him glide tonight? No, he does not get to jump off the house. He wants to. Darn it. What are you doing, Jeffrey? I'm going to try to go trick-or-treating with my kids for about 30 minutes and then try to sneak back to the house somehow to start a fire in our front yard with the fire pit while conveniently listening to slash and or watching 
the baseball game. You're going to actually we'll see if light it plays a fire, out that way. And the fire is like a distraction fire? No. So that you can then watch When it. we come back, we will sit out on the front porch in front of the hot fire and hand out candy. He's going to torch the shed on the other side of the property <laughs> so you can watch TV over here. Oh, wow. This is I'm going to send smoke signals to the, to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yeah. That's hard. What are your kids dressed up as? Uh, my five-year-old is Elena of Avalor. Come again? Wow. Yeah. And my three-year-old is Rapunzel. Oh, neat. Sans wig because it kept getting in her face and she was so not So she's a just Rapunzel with a hairless Rapunzel. Then she's my... post-donation of the hair. Right. Rapunzel. She's lost her powers. Mm-hmm. And uh, my baby is Stanislav. the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Oh, I could just eat him. And he's got the cheeks for it. Does he? Mm-hmm. Just like his dad. Hmm? That was funny. That's great. Um, it's going to be a good night for y'all. I'm just going to sit home and watch the game. I may just put the TV up against the window and pull the blinds up so that I can see the TV from outside. Mm. Maybe that's a good compromise. Do you think no. the wife will go for that? No, she won't. You may, really? uh, you may draw a crowd. There's Maybe. A, there's just an easier way. Who, All you have to do is put an earphone in. Yeah. Just... I would think that was worse no, because I already no. cannot hear that well. Oh, that's right. So my wife oh, trying right. to get my attention. No, but you're going to have the other ear open and then you just put the – then you can listen to the game. But you can shake your head and nod like you're listening to her or everyone else. I think she'll see the earbud hanging from my ear. Well, that's – yeah, you got to hide that a little bit. But then, honestly, after about the first couple hours, she will, she'll quit remembering about it. You have to do the groundwork about, like, this is how you deal with stressful situations is you have the earbud in. And yeah. you can have something else to kind of distract I'm you, pull you, you out of the situation. It's just a whole – People to still will talk to you even if you're wearing, yeah, like, huge ear muffs or whatever they call them. Constantly. Constantly, yeah. I think, it'll, I think it'll be okay to just put it up in the window. Yeah, yeah, you'll be fine. And just occasionally glance up at it. Yeah. Mm, sure. Except You're going to miss the game. Yeah, you'll miss the home runs. You're going to miss the whole game. But just know this. I will I will be watching you. You I mean will. you'll be watching the game? Yeah, for you. And then if you want, text me. I'll, I'll fill you in. The Dodgers are favored to win they sh- they game should win. They, six. They better win tonight. Well, saying, they have yeah. to win tonight. Right. So it's they really have no choice. And the Astros have to lose. But I don't know. One, the Dodgers have to. Here's here's a crazy strategy, but it just may work. Okay, the Dodgers have to score more runs than the Astros. Oh wow, you have thought this through. They've got to go in there. They've got to give it a hundred ten percent. Or the, by the way, or the Astros could score fewer runs than the Dodgers. That could work too. Mm-hmm. So they have a myriad of of possible outcomes, <laughs> all leading to a Dodgers win, possibly. Or a loss, which is more likely. It's not in the cards for them to lose. They're not playing cards, but they're playing ball. Play ball! Hey, uh, Then why do the Dodgers have an ace on the mound? Are you done? (laughs) Just trying to go on with the show. Man. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about how pain is not the fifth vital sign. Apparently, what, 25 years ago, doctors started claiming you got to pay attention to pain like it's a vital sign. And that may have led to what we now know as the opioid epidemic. 
Got to get rid of the pain and all those little smiley, frowny faces, the 1 to 10 pain scale that you see in every doctor's office. We'll be talking about uh, how uh, just one simple change in how we measure pain may have uh, caused to a lot of overdoses and deaths. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. The Journal of the American Medical Association announced that although average life expectancy of an American is up, the rising opioid crisis has shaved 2.5 months off of this improvement. After years of misinformation and a national epidemic of opioid abuse, we are finally uh, coming to the conclusion or realizing that pain should not be considered one of the top five vital signs when you go see a doctor. So here to speak with us today and help us understand the argument I mean, even, first of all, how pain became one of the vital signs um, and then understand uh, how it's impacted possibly the opioid epidemic is uh, a a history of – is a doctor – oh, boy. Dr. Miles Gart, a former surgeon and president and CEO of GartMD.com, a wonderful website uh, with resources there. Uh, Dr. Gart, thank you so much for helping us today. You bet, Matt. So as the director of acute pain services at Faith Regional Health System in Norfolk, uh, Nebraska, you, I mean, I just saw it in the hospital. You see it through all these hospitals, the little smiley face, one through 10, rate your pain chart. When did pain become a vital sign? I never knew that. Well, pain became a vital sign in the uh, early 90s. And uh, the American Pain Society coined that phrase and that, uh, and after that, it caught on nationally. Joint Commission picked it up, and every hospital in the United States, after the Joint Commission picked up that um, pain needs to be assessed within the hospital setting, uh, hospitals naturally had to find a mechanism to assess pain. And in their their quest to uh, assess pain, they relied on the numeric pain score, the 0 to 10, as you mentioned. Um, the vital sign was uh, put in to stress the point that pain is such a, uh, a major problem in hospitals. And in the 90s, uh, there was a consensus that there was a national epidemic of untreated pain. Now, it's true that untreated pain existed in the population of uh cancer patients, end-of-life care, palliative care, et cetera. And in those cases, giving uh, patients narcotics uh, is not as big an issue as expanding the narcotic role to patients with other types of pain. Well, um, I mean, that makes, right, that they're, they're dying. So if we can alleviate pain, that seems to help. One idea, though, about using um, a vital, I mean, making it a vital sign would be that Every single interaction a doctor or nurse would have with a patient, once we check vitals, one of those vitals would be, are you feeling any pain? And it seems like all of a sudden we started drawing more attention to pain than maybe we actually wanted to. Right. It's, imp- it's important to address pain because intolerable, untreated pain has consequences with healing, infection, etc., but when you mix a subjective measure such as pain 
with objective measures of, uh, of, of the patient's uh, bodily functions, such as pulse and temperature, respirations and blood pressure, you kind of mix apples with oranges. Right. So, so every time a uh, interaction occurs within the hospital with a nurse doing a, um, a rounding on a patient, they take vital signs, and then one of them is, how's your pain? And when a patient says, my pain is eight, there's only, uh, you, you don't have many uh, resources to treat that pain other than trying to get it from an eight down to a, to a zero. And, right. and that's where... That's where the problem comes in, because uh, over time, this treatment of pain became uh, the focus of the patient's experience within the hospital. And the federal government in 2012 started this value-based purchasing as part of the Affordable Care Act. And within it, uh, hospitals get paid or reimbursed on their Medicare money based on a patient's experience within the hospital setting. So when you start putting dollar signs behind the uh, patient experience, and, and if the patient's experience within the hospital setting is predicated on how their pain is treated, you could see the focus then from an administrative standpoint and then down to a nursing standpoint on we have to get this pain under control. Hmm. We don't. If we don't, the entire experience that the patient has during the hospital setting uh, becomes poor. Uh, technically, we can lose Medicare dollars, and this could turn into a lot of money. Boy, I, so then all of a sudden, I need to keep you uh, medicated in order for you to give me a happy, smiley rating so that we can then get reimbursed fully. Exactly. Wow. That's a that, that's a systemic problem, isn't it? Then all of a sudden, everything is about managing that expectation. And um, it seems like uh, I, mean, I was in the hospital for a gallbladder surgery and they kept asking me how my pain is. And I'm honestly, I I didn't know what they want. Am I supposed to be pain? I remember asking them, so what do you want me to be at? Am I am I supposed to be pain free here? And they like, yeah, we'd like you to have no pain. And I'm thinking, well, shouldn't a little pain be normal? Um, I just had surgery. It should be normal. So that's where the educational gap comes in, because, uh, you know, few institutions actually prior to you had your gallbladder out, but prior to surgery, sit down with the patient and go over pain expectations. So the pain expectations after surgery should be that you will have some pain. Our goal is to have you at a tolerable pain level. That's different for everybody. Right. But our, our goal is not to have zero pain. And if you don't have that conversation ahead of time, and a patient is uh, waking up after surgery and you ask the patient how they're feeling, and they say, well, I don't know, my pain's an eight, you're going you're gonna to tend to uh, treat, and eventually you're going to tend to over-treat. Mm-hmm. Now, with, with younger, healthy patients in the acute care setting, it's, it, it's not as big an issue, but once you get to high-risk patients, and, and our national population, as you know, is getting uh, more overweight uh, as the decades go by, but you run into patients with sleep apnea, uh, you run into patients that have uh, airway issues and breathing problems, and when you start to sedate them or treat them with narcotics, uh, they don't uh, respond 
like they would at home to uh, airway issues. In other words, uh, if you're having pain and I treat you with enough narcotics, you'll eventually obstruct in your breathing and, and, and not breathe. Mm. And, and that has become a major issue to a point where now the Joint Commission says, you know, um, you guys need to really evaluate your narcotic usage in the hospitals, which is kind of ironic because, you know, in, in the early, in 2001, 2002, the Joint Commission was saying we got a national epidemic of untreated pain. You really need to treat the pain. Well, now, as more and more patients are having complications from the treatment of pain, especially with narcotics, uh, they're saying you, you now need to be extremely careful with your, with your narcotic administration in the hospital and monitor the patients more closely. Hmm. It really, it seems like a fairly confusing message to uh, the doctors. Do you, is there a correlation? I mean, are, can you say there's a direct correlation between this paradigm shift of making uh, pain one of the five vital signs and actually the increase in opioid use? Without a doubt, I think. I I think once you put pain on on the level of a objective vital sign with with blood pressure and and pulse and uh, uh, respiration, you, uh, you have to treat it. I mean, especially if you attribute a number to it. Right. And, you know, pharmaceutical companies and big pharma who have uh, come out with uh, synthetic opioids and uh, highly addictive opioids, very potent uh, opioids, have capitalized on this fact. And they, through their promotional uh, information, have, have trained physicians, nursing, hospitals to uh, help providers decrease the pain score. Uh, if you just look at the early 90s, when, when pain as a vital sign came out, there were about um, 76 million prescriptions for opioids nationally. And then, you know, over the next 20 years, that escalated to about 220 million. Wow. So there, so there is a direct correlation between, in my opinion, Okay, other people could debate this, obviously, but in my opinion, putting a major focus on pain as a vital sign, having government oversight and regulatory agencies put such a tremendous uh, uh, additional focus on the treatment of pain with the escalation of prescriptions as an outpatient, the escalation of narcotic administration as an inpatient, and uh, the subsequent crisis that we're in today. Hmm. I, I, I mean, most patients' first exposure to narcotics are with an injury or surgery. Right. And if the first medication you're going to give is a, is, is a narcotic, then uh, the likelihood of you either continuing that narcotic as an outpatient or continuing the narcotic long-term and becoming addicted to it increases. Well, and does it, I mean, I I have, uh, just from my bout with gallbladder surgery and issues, I have uh, I have painkillers that I never used, never really needed, but they were prescribed after two procedures. And I'm thinking, 
did I even need it? Did they they just kind of gave it to me? And you know, if you have pain, here's what you'll take. But are there other options? And are there? Do you see a better way of handling this? Yes, there are other options. The other options are to uh, use non-narcotic uh, analgesics, and uh, non-narcotic analgesics are uh, acetaminophen, ibuprofen, you know, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, or you know, acetaminophen is Tylenol. But you start with a foundation of non-narcotic medication. There are also other medications that help uh, these work better in a kind of synergistically. And then as a last resort, you should use a, uh, a small dose of a narcotic for, for breakthrough pain. Um, nobody knows really how long you need to take a narcotic and what dose you need to take a narcotic to become addicted. Hmm. So if you, if, if you ask 100 physicians, you know, if I take my prescription after my gallbladder surgery that I, that I went home and I take it for three weeks, every six hours, two pills, am I going to become addicted? You're not going to get a... Uh, Nobody knows. Answer. Yeah. Exactly. And now they're finding from a genetic standpoint that there are patients that are genetically predisposed to becoming addicted, sort of like alcoholism. Uh, some hospitals are even doing blood testing before patients are admitted to see what the uh, predisposition is and whether patients will respond to opiates and how they will respond once they're in the hospital. Yeah. Right now, right now it's not cost effective. It's about $1,000 to test patients when they come into the hospital. But I, I think the point I'm trying to make is there are patients that if, if you send them home on narcotic prescriptions, that will get addicted, and and some experts say it's up to thirty percent. Holy cow, that's crazy! And all right. and really, just because too, we were we we started by calling it a vital sign. What what do you recommend, uh, Doctor Miles um, Gart, uh, about families? What can I do as a family member? What can I do as a dad with my kids to make sure that that we're on top of this, that we're managing it, that we're getting the best health care we can. So as a family member, if you have a, uh, you know, a loved one that has uh, severe pain, uh, try to get to the, the cause of it, obviously. I mean, if you're having pain and, and your child has uh, stomach aches or it, you need to evaluate why, the, why you're having pain to begin with. And there's pain that's episodic. Sometimes it's worse. Sometimes it's better. And there's pain that's uh, chronic. I mean, you, you have patients after car accidents that have uh, broken hips and, and broken backs that even after surgery um, will never be pain-free. Hmm. And those patients are the most difficult patients to manage because it, you go into a chronic pain category and narcotics taken long-term, eventually you're going to get tolerant to it, need more and more narcotics. So those patients need to be evaluated by specialists that manage chronic pain and that could do different uh, modalities to, for treatment that are that could deal with the pain itself and not treat it with uh, narcotics. The other other patients that have more of an acute pain, you you treat with your non-narcotic medications at first and um, and then take it from there. We. Uh, 
we're doing something very exciting at, uh, at our facility. We're going to be rolling out a new pain assessment and management protocol for the hospital. We'll probably, we'll, it, it, as far as I know, we'll be the only hospital in the country that gets rid of the pain scale, the 0 to 10 pain huh. scale. It's going to be very difficult because uh, when nurses graduate, medical students graduate, they, they all are taught this pain scale in schools. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a re-education process, but one that I think is necessary in order to manage pain in the hospital setting um, without over-treating it. And, and it focuses more on the objective signs of pain that we talked about, heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, pupil size, et cetera, and less with the patient's self-assessment of pain. The only question that a patient will be asked when they're in the hospital is, is your pain tolerable or intolerable? Hmm. That's it. No, no zero to 10. Yeah. I've had that too with a kidney uh, stone. Um, boy, intolerable pain and, uh, you know, a little, a little, uh, what was it? I think just the uh, big dose of uh, Tylenol or whatever it was uh, took it all away. Greatest thing in the world. But then I've also had just tolerable pain. And so when, when in your new program, you're going to actually get rid of the chart, basically tolerable or non-tolerable, intolerable, and then um, and then just treat them with like you're still going to give, I'm, I'm assuming, painkillers. But right. You're. You're going to give ana- you're going to give painkillers, but the doctor is right? going to be deciding. Well, actually, the, it's the the doctor will kind of prescribe a, a set of medications that are that are tiered. Like tier one will be a, a low level, tier two uh-huh. moderate, tier three a high level. But when uh, nursing does a pain assessment, you'll actually be able to critically think and and assess the overall pain of the patient with the tolerable intolerable and the and the other objective signs of pain and then put together a pain management uh, pr- uh, treatment plan hmm. so do I do I now escalate my uh, my analgesic therapy do I keep it the same or do I e- de-escalate because I think the patient's getting over sedated it's very rare in a hospital setting that you de-escalate pain medication right because if if I'm constantly asking you how your pain is, and you always tell me eight, it, it's hard for a provider to then um, back off on the pain medication. Yeah, you, yeah, <laughs> you, you, especially when you need to serve them. And I mean, again, I guess it makes sense too to just keep me semi medicated. <laughs> so when I leave, yeah. I feel really good about my stay. It's amazing. I felt no pain. I but, felt no pain. Right. Yeah. I right. mean, that, that would actually work really well in business. If every time you went to your accountant, if he gave you painkillers, you'd probably always love your accountant. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, sad thing about it is that, you know, it doesn't always mean good health. I guess, too, in the end, they're suffering. I mean, you don't want people to suffer, but you but pain is part of life no matter what. Right. I mean, just as we age, we're going to constantly have aches and pains. Right. I mean, and that's where the, the, the opposite side of the argument comes in. It's kind of like it's not humane to let patients uh, suffer. It's not humane to let patients uh, have, quote, untreated pain. Well, that is true, but we're talking about untreated intolerable pain. We're right. not talking about untreated tolerable pain. 
when my when my son you know rides his bike and falls off his bike and skins his knee and comes in crying you know that's that's pain but i'm not going to go to the uh to the uh pharmacist and get a bunch of oxycontin and start <laughs> giving my giving my son oxycontin because he fell off his bike right. and he's having pain so I, you know, you need to look at it reasonably and come up with, uh, uh, you know, reasonable solutions to, to a problem. And this has been going on for 20, 30 years now. Yeah, no, and I like I like how you're approaching it, too, because uh, as a parent, I'm worried about it. And for you to bring up that we have this new process of managing the pain and it's tolerable or it's intolerable, um, I, I think it's I think it's great insight, and I'm excited to see how how it goes in the future. Again, uh, thank you, Dr. Miles Gart, for your great work. Uh, you, people can go to the website gartmd.com to get more information on what they're doing. He is again the director of acute pain services at Faith Regional Health System in Nor- Norfolk, Nebraska. We got to find new ways, folks, don't we, to handle our our pain um, and and to just the pain of life, medicating the self medication that we're doing. Crazy stuff happening uh, as all of us are trying to avoid pain. Again, there's very real chronic pain um, people out there that are suffering from chronic pain, and that's that seems uh, that seems like where we really ought to be focusing on on long term healthy solutions as well. We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, get through the pains in life. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it is an interesting discussion about pain. And I do remember in the hospital, they'd keep asking me, so how's your pain? Rate your pain for me. And uh, maybe it's just kind of the neurotic side of me, but I didn't. I mean, it was good. Do you need more painkiller? I don't know. Did you do the smiley face, the yeah. uh, slightly slanted downward face? <laughs> yeah, I did the middle smiley face. But I felt like I felt this weird pressure because I don't I didn't know if they wanted me to be. I mean, I, I can handle a little pain. So do you want me in a little pain in the hospital or do you want me to be pain free? I asked them that question. They said, we don't want you to have any pain. Wow. But I'm also thinking, well, but hold on. My gallbladder is dying. So I ought to have some pain, right? Maybe emotional pain. Yeah. Emotional pain. So we we are are we just over medicating and is that an unrealistic expectation that people should go through life without any pain? I mean, I've been watching some Netflix shows where people lop each other's hands off. What shows are you watching? I don't know. It was it was like it was like I don't know. I've been watching shows where people have been lopping each other's records off and, you know. In baseball. Yeah, like yeah. perfect game bids they've been lopping off. Yeah, that was close. They almost had a perfect game. Well, almost a no-hitter. They would not have left him in the whole game. But, anyway. But a, but a cowboy back in the day falls off their horse, breaks a rib. They're not – they would just – I guess they would go to whiskey. <laughs> but – have we just become a bunch of weaklings where we don't tolerate pain as much? Again, I get it. in the end of days, if you're dying and passing away, they should just 
medicate you up so you don't feel anything, I think. As long as you're coherent. I mean, I'd want to be coherent. I think we've earned that right. Yeah. And there's some good drugs that can take care of that stuff. And for you, there's Netflix. And for me, there's just a nice little Netflix binge. But I don't know. I think in the end, we all have to maybe learn to tolerate a little bit more pain. By the way, another interesting little fact of life, just taking um, Tylenol actually acts as an antidepressant. Did you know that? Really? Mm-hmm. Because hmm. it it dulls the same pain sensors that you would have if you were in emotional pain. So I think a lot of people that are getting into uh, opioids and other drugs, they, they are probably that 30% that he talked about that have a potential addiction or a possibility of being addicted to it easily. And they're trying to mask and medicate other things. And we're all medicating with something. It just doesn't mean it's healthy. It doesn't make our lives necessarily any better. So uh, be careful out there, folks. Be careful. (laughs) Brought to you by the pharmaceutical companies that bring you opioids. Was that a whip? Yeah, I think he was getting whipped. That's not good. And that would be painful. That would be very painful. Uh, Up next, we're going to be talking Halloween healthy candy. How do the nutritionists rate the candy? Yesterday, we found out Reese's uh, tends to be running away with the list. We'll see if it's the healthiest choice. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, folks. Our favorite candy corn song. Actually, Jeff's favorite candy corn song. Oh, it's a Halloween song, but there's got to be better Halloween songs, Jeff. You need to dig deeper into the barrel. Which other one is going to have a piece of bacon and a shark high-fiving each other? Well, none, but it is candy corn. Uh, Terry's now going to give us a quick update on the healthy, if there is such a thing as a healthier candy according to the nutritionists of the world. So the American Heart Association recommends limiting your added sugar intake to 37 grams for men and 25 for women per day. Okay, so is that a fun-size candy bar? (laughs) How many? That's looking at a fun-size candy bar. So this article on NBC News goes through, and they talk with some nutritionists, and they figure out here's some healthy options for candy on Halloween. Okay, but should we even be trying healthy no, I mean, should you just toss it out? Oh, some people just can't let just, go, and so I'm, just, I'm trying to help. Okay, I'm trying okay, to help. Okay. Trolley sour bite crawlers—they're like gummy worms. Interesting. Something you've never heard of. Yeah, they're on the candy aisle. I've seen them. They're, okay. they're kind of random, but at 100 calories and 14 grams of sugar, you can eat eight pieces. Oh boy! Wow. Right. Reese's uh, snack size Reese's peanut butter cups. Oh. 111 calories, 11 grams of sugar. That's one. Peanut butter cup. Oh, no. So we can't have that. But it says it's good, though, because the protein and fiber will help keep you fuller longer. Okay, good. (laughs) That's why I feel so sick after eating the whole bag. Charms blow blow pops. So ones with bubble gum in them. That's what my wife gets. 13 grams of sugar, only 70 calories. Yeah, but it's just... It's gross. But you can keep chewing. So you think you're eating... For about four minutes... Then the gum loses all its flavor, and then your jaw starts to harden. 
a Snickers miniature, you know, the mini ones. Yeah, Four yeah. piece serving, 170 calories. 18 grams of sugar. So is no. that one little miniature cut into four pieces? No, that's four mini okay. pieces. Oh, you so. could eat four little ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. So that's a good serving, right? <laughs> yeah. No, he's loving. Kit Kat Minis. I was snickering. Kit Kat Minis. These tiny Kit Kats clock in at 170 calories, 70 grams of sugar for four pieces. Again, our experts recommend limiting yourself to one piece to stay under five grams of 70 sugar. 70 grams of sugar? No, no, no. 170 calories, 17 grams oh, of sugar. 17. Oh, 17. So they're, they're saying just so good. limit yourself and you maybe maybe you stretch that out for the entire evening. You have four pieces of candy. You know what? It's not happening. You know what I'm saying? This, this is, is un-American. A, Tootsie Roll Minis are on the list. They're 150 calories, 19 grams of sugar, but no protein or fiber. No, duh. That's why you have a hot dog. Those minis are 150 calories? Yeah. And they're rock and hard, too. Candy corn got the worst. 28 grams of sugar and 19 pieces of candy corn. But nobody eats just 19 because they're so small. They just grab a handful and go for it. Yeah. And they're yeah. just straight sugar. Wouldn't you rather have a Snickers? Yeah. Oh, I should have had a Snickers bar. Great stuff, folks. That's your healthy uh, candy update in preparation for tonight's Hallowed Eve. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Terry South and Jeff Simpson. The gang is gathered. Happy Halloween to you all. You look great, Jeffrey. Jeff's all dressed up as a, a Los Angeles Dodger. And hopefully that's not scary. No. The funny thing is, I thought you would dress more like a baseball player, but you are just dressed like a guy that is trying to dodge traffic in your <laughs> Prius. <laughs> I don't have a Prius. I have had a Prius. You have a Solara. That's true. I Solara. Hmm? I don't know. Um, good to good to have you here. Uh, tonight is the big night. When the kids go out, they grab their little Halloween bags and start knocking doors f- to uh, see if they, they'll either have to do a trick or you'll just give them a treat. The funny thing is, I guess, in the end, uh, there's probably not a lot of people doing tricks, right? It's just a lot of treating. It's all about the treat. Whatever happened to the trick side? What kind of tricks are you referring to? Well, didn't that used to be the game is you'd have to do a trick to get a treat. I've got an example for you. Yeah. In the film Meet Me in St. Louis. Hold on. Are you referring to a film now? Yes. Okay. But it's a movie that's typically associated with Christmas, right? Judy Garland sings Have Yourself a a Merry Little Christmas, right? Yes. There's a scene where they're celebrating Halloween, and it's one of the creepiest rituals I've ever seen. What? All these kids gather in the neighborhood and they're throwing like piles of wood and all sorts of toys and everything into this big pile in the middle of the street and lighting it on fire. (gasps) And apparently that was kind of an acceptable way of celebrating Halloween. Oh, yeah. See, you're too young. But back in the day, we used to light everything on fire. But it seemed sanctioned. Oh, it was. 
You, you used to – I remember vividly my parents and grandparents saying, Matt, get the gasoline out of the garage. We're going to celebrate Hallowed Eve. Yeah. And I'd go grab and lug you know, this huge can of fuel and then we would slowly build a bonfire to, um, to eliminate the dark forces from the neighborhood. Crazy. See, now you can't get away with anything like that. No. I mean you get in trouble if you don't say thank you mm-hmm. for the treats. When you go trick-or-treating. Yeah. That's the worst thing you could do. That's the trick. We used to go to my friend's house and we'd watch a scary movie, like an old movie, a Frankenstein. You'd watch it for 20 minutes and eat your candy. And then you'd go get a carameled apple. And then you'd go, you know, you just go door to door and people would just love you and give you all of this food that was handmade Caramel balls. Oh, it was so wonderful. And yeah. then you can't eat handmade stuff. Not anymore. Or now you've got to go get your food x rayed. It's got to be FDA approved. Yeah. Non GMO verified. <laughs> you've thought this through. By the way, if you look at packaging, food packaging, yeah. if it says non GMO, you, tra- you can't take that to the bank. It has to have that non GMO verified stamp. Yeah. Right on the bag. Stampage. Yeah. No, I agree. You can, what do you what do you trust anymore? That's the thing we got to get to. Plus, you know what else we're going to talk about today? Emotions. Blah. Your kids are going to have a lot of emotions, so we're going to be speaking with a psychiatrist, Dr. Frank Ninavaji, one of our favorite uh, favorites from Yale University, and he's going to be walking us through how to make sense of your child's emotions. Tonight Ooh. you'll see a lot of emotions. Your uh, your daughter, Rapunzel? My older daughter came home after having watched a video at church that was very disturbing to her. Yes. And she was full of emotions. So this we're going to show you how you can actually make sense of the emotions and use them as almost like vital signs for I'm, how to handle somebody's emotions. You talked about treats or tricks. I'm going to try to trick you here in a minute. It's not going to happen. We've played Matlibs several times. Mm-hmm. We've got a special Halloween edition, and this time I think I've got you. Okay. It's going to be more difficult well, for you. I think so far you haven't you haven't won one yet. Not to be rude, but well, I, this one tonight. Are you are you feeling lucky? This one will be won. Okay. You actually might because you went to your area of strength, movies, <laughs> which is my area of weakness. Even though you watch more than I do. You say I watch more, but I actually am not actually watching the screen as much as you are. Hmm. You actually remember names, stories, plots, everything. I just remember, hey, I think I saw a little bit of that. Hmm. Let's get to the headlines now with Terry South. Speaking of getting a little bit of it, what should we be paying attention to, Terry? Democratic lobbyist Tony Podesta is stepping down from his firm, the Podesta Group, after finding himself a target of special counsel Robert Mueller's ongoing investigation into the Trump campaign's possible collusion with Russia, political reports. Podesta was reportedly sucked into the Mueller probe during an investigation into the finances of President Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort. Manafort organized a PR campaign on behalf of a nonprofit called the European Center for Modern Ukraine Political Rights. Podesta Group was one of the several firms that were paid to work on the PR campaign to promote Ukraine in the United States. Podesta's brother was the campaign manager for Hillary Clinton. That's why the name sounds familiar. 
Yeah. Ha- the brother has no connection to this because he didn't help out with this lobbying firm, but Podesta stepping down, and this is uh, just but how this kind of works. wasn't this firm the same firm that paid that they paid for the dossier? No. This is whole di- that was called Fusion GPS. Fusion GPS. Not Podesta Group. It's different. Okay. So uh, just it just shows you how how Mueller's probe is going in, and there's there's all these sort of side like tangents. Yeah. That happen, and these sort of people on the side are also getting tied into this because they're involved in things and taking money and all sorts of stuff. So but he's the president's down. not worried about it. No, it has nothing to do with him. Just all the people that worked for him that he hired. That you know maybe they hired bad people. Yeah. You never know. I mean, whole yeah. background checks and security thing. I mean, they were done I mean, really fast. He's, he's a business leader, and yeah. he's known to, for his business smarts. It just seems like ugh, maybe not as smart who, on the who, business who, who end. Who praises him for the business smarts? Uh, all of his followers. And his book, and his kids, and well, President Trump. Well, no, and 40-whatever percent of the people that voted for that him. listened to President Trump talk on his TV show about how great he was a business. Yeah, but I'm just saying the source of the information seems to be coming from one place. Well, of course. Yeah. It didn't come from his taxes. Well, no, because he hasn't released those, so we don't know. Yeah. But it did get him elected. Well, it sure did. Speaking of, just 33% of Americans surveyed in the last uh, Gallup poll approve of President Donald Trump's job performance, a new low for him. 62% of the approximately 150,000 or 100 uh, or 1,500 Americans surveyed said they disapprove of the 45th president's performance thus far. Trump's previous low in the Gallup poll came in mid-August when his rating sank to 34%. Ooh. He's now at 33. <gasps> that approval rate is lower than President Obama, Bill Clinton, George H.W., or Ronald Reagan ever received during their tenures. Really? Mm. Yeah. The poll was conducted before Monday's news of the uh, Mueller indictments. Of former Trump campaign staffers. Mueller, not Mulder. Not Mulder. It would be probably a better story if it was Mulder. But so, did, aliens, but so does he worry about that? No, because it's a fake poll. Oh, that's fake news. Yeah, it's fake. Except for the people that took the survey. Yeah, it's the poll that shows that everyone loves him is the one he likes. Well, because that's the real news. Apparently. I'm trying. Okay. I'm starting to see how this pattern works. This is a this is great pattern. In some grim news, doctors are reportedly racing to save the leg of Chicago Bears tight end Zach Miller, who damaged an artery after dislocating his knee in an Ooh, attempt to make a yeah. touchdown during Sunday's game against the New Orleans Saints. Vascular surgeons are trying to save Zach Miller's leg, not just his career, tweets Ooh. ESPN's Adam Schefter. That's scary. And the, the bad part was they took the touchdown away, too, because apparently it wasn't a catch. Was was he bleeding on the field? No. It's just it's all internal. It was all internal. He just he, he grabbed it. He went for a – it was didn't look that weird. Just his leg sort of folded underneath him as he was going for this catch. And he made the catch, but apparently it wasn't Can a, you, all and so the way. It, then, it, then it severed an artery. Yeah. And he's sitting there just holding his leg because he dislocated his knee. I know, but in your head, you're just like, ah, oh, boy, I'm going to need a little knee surgery. Yeah. And the next thing you know, you may lose your leg. Yeah. So they're trying to save his That's leg. scary. So speak. So I'll Jeff, watch. you watch out, dude. Jeff's wearing spikes. Yeah, I saw that. Ooh. He's wearing his cleats. I almost lost my leg this summer, remember? That's right. When you, for like yeah. two months, my my leg was had this otherworldly ooze And what did we learn? What did we learn? About sliding into second base with short shorts. It was third base. Third base with short shorts. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. That's the sure way to get an infection. That's why I bought these baseball pants that I'm wearing right now. And they look wonderful except for the bloodstains. And some information for Halloween. Yes. The long, weird, and 
or the long weird history of trick or treating is what it's called. <laughs> okay, but, let's learn about it. Goes about into this. like the Celts held a feast called uh, Samhain. S A M H A I N. Samhain. It was an observation of the harvest, the end of the summer, and the turn of the year. Okay. Right. So what they said is you hold the sur- you hold the celebration in May, because after that the the year turned to cold, fruitless, and dark days of winter. The feast was also an opportunity to contemplate death and to remember those who had gone before. Hmm. So uh, they felt like during the latter half of the year, so May on, that the thin be- the veil between death and life was thinner. You right. could have more connection yeah, no, with your right. ancestors. I totally am with you. Uh, and so bonfires were lit to ward off the coming winter darkness, but also to sacrifice livestock and crops and other things as they to their ancestors, right? So they okay. did this. So it to said, those that have gone before, right? So they and uh, some scholars, uh, because of the long historical association between the Celts and the Romans, have also linked the modern observance of Halloween to the Roman festival honoring Pomona, a goddess of fruit trees. During that festival, people practiced. Uh, very, you know, they had different celebrations. One of the games and that they played is really close to bobbing for apples. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, and and originally it was believed that whoever could bite the apple first would get married soonest. Whoa. Oh, wow! See, that's where someone's going to like lose a finger. I thought yeah. it was you had to bite off the stem with your teeth and no. then tie it in a knot. No, that's that's a different game. Hmm. They play that somewhere else. And then this article points to the Christian celebration of All uh, All Saints Day. You kind of turn to All Hallows Eve, All Hallows Day, All Halloween. You know, and that's yeah. so the word just sort of evolved from All Saints Day and observances around this. Um, All Souls Day was November second, A.D. What one thousand through the Middle Ages? This three day period was celebrated with masses, but other traditions of appeasing the spirits. Remained, and so that's kind of where the spooky elements of Halloween okay. come from. Yeah, um, it goes on. There are practices that continue today in England. For example, one of the practitioners on All Hallows Eve was to go door to door begging for small currant biscuits called soul cakes. Do you have any soul cakes? Which were offered in exchange for <laughs> prayers. While not all scholars agree, it's part of a popular belief that this practice echoes in today's modern trick or treating. Oh, interesting. So you'd go, you'd go say, "Do you have a soul cake?" And then I'll pray for you. Yeah. Okay, it seems a little different today. Yeah. In Ireland, people would walk the streets carrying candles and hollowed-out turnips, the precursor of today's jack-o'-lanterns. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, let's see. It came to the U.S. Halloween, however, did not make its way to the U.S. till 1840, in the 1840s when waves of immigrants from the Celtic countries of Ireland and Scotland arrived. These immigrants brought with them the tradition of Halloween, including dancing, masquerading, fortune-telling games in some places, the practice of parading in the neighborhood, asking for treats such as nuts, fruits, and coins. Hmm. By the 19th century, some of the stores began offering commercially made Halloween candy. In North America, observance of Halloween also included everything from minor pranks to some major vandalism, as well as a lot of drinking, as you can imagine. Yeah. By the early 20th century, however, many municipalities and churches attempted to curb this behavior by turning Halloween into a family celebration with children's parties, and eventually trick-or-treating was as we know it today. And then wow. it becomes commercialized, and we all get cavities. Really? That's kind of a downer way to end that. The quick history of Halloween, well, which all leads to dentists. Is it's it just, really commercialized? It's, it is a huge, huge, like, just fraud perpetrated upon all the country by the National Dental Association. By the way, I went to the dentist yesterday. And? What did he say? The brush? Floss? No, he said, I'm, I'm nailing it. Need to eat more candy? He said, Matt, I'm proud of you. His kid isn't getting into college because After of you? After 48 years, you figured out how to do this brush thing. <laughs> 
And but there's just nothing more uncomfortable than them scratching your teeth. Right. All of my teeth ached last night. I don't know why. It makes no sense, right? Because what did I ever do to them? So do you think the odds of this being a big dental scam are high? Or do you think that... No. See, dentists are nice. They're not trying to hurt you. They're not trying to encourage they you to do something Halloween that way. They love Halloween because this is, where, this, is, this is where they make their money. Do, do, they, do they think that way? Yeah. In January, they are going to... You will be paying for tonight. Wow. It's a good time for them. I mean, it makes us makes it sound like they're evil. No, just but what makes them evil isn't that. It, what makes them evil is that they poke you with metal pokies <laughs> till your eyes water, and then they're like, "You okay?" Well, yeah, my legs are just super tense, and I'm twisted into a ball as you're scratching my teeth. Except that all comes out as because <laughs> you get your mouth full of like dental yeah. equipment. <clears throat> yeah. Did you at least get to watch the TV in the ceiling? I did. But I couldn't. I didn't have my glasses on, so I couldn't see it. Ah, I saw lots of flashes, though. So uh, yes, I want to try to trick you. Trick away. Okay. So we've played several rounds of what are we calling it? Mat libs. Mat libs. Yeah. <laughs> I think three, and I've yet to fool you. Yeah. But I think I've got because I got a steel trap right here. Got you right where I want you. Okay. So uh, six films. Boy, see that part of the deal is you've now made it six, so you've increased your odds dramatically. Usually six, you have three, six scary films. Okay, and instead of looking for the one that is the real film, you have to find the one that is the film that is not the real film. Okay, so you got to find the fake film. All right, fake it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Soul Cake. I'm just kidding. That's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. However, it is a song by Sting. Oh, yeah. We'll play it as we go to break. Okay. First one. The Lift. A mysterious, intelligent elevator begins a murderous spree to those who dare go near the elevator or use it. Okay. The Lift. Got it. House. A schoolgirl and six of her classmates travel to her aunt's country home, which tries to devour the girls in bizarre ways. Mm. The house, not the aunt, just to clarify. (laughs) Good. House. Rubber. A tire comes to life and kills people with its psychic powers. Rubber. Surly. The world's worst clown sets out to take revenge on those who gave him the moniker. Surly. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of sounded like Surly the Clown. (laughs) Pin. P-I-N. A brother and sister treat their doctor father's therapeutic dummy like a brother. Wow. Pin. And number six. Yes. Meet love. (laughs) Two pieces of meat fall in love. Meet love. Meet love. Holy cow. So the names of the, the shows are Lift, The House, Rubber, Surly, Pin, or Meet Love. By the yes. way, they all have one or two word Pretty names. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, well, that's easy. This is an easy one. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. You think you know the answer? I do. Which film is the fake film? Well, let me be clear. The name of the film, you the description of the film, you gave an accurate description of every name. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So you accurately described Surly. Mm-hmm. So can you reread Surly for me sure. again? 
Surly, the world's worst clown, sets out to take revenge on those who gave him the moniker. And I am to pick the the one that is not the real movie. Correct. Yeah, it's going to be Surly. And why? Because Surly is one of your favorite words. (laughs) And uh, you made a clown movie about the worst clown and called him Surly. And Surly is a word that is in your vocabulary. And you've used it on the show before. I made a film about Surly, a clown? You've made you have used the word surly. Okay, I've used I've also used every other yeah, one no, of I'm these pretty words. Sure it's surly. Okay, I mean meat love could be easily up there. And who's going to believe a, a scary show about a tire? And would they have ever called it rubber? Probably, but the reality is, I'm going to go with answer number four. Surly is the fake film. Okay, we will find out later. If you are right, <sighs> so we have to wait. At the end of this I'm gonna hour, give you, folks, I'm going to give you time to change your answer in case you start to second guess yourself. But everybody else, text us at Dr. Matt Show at Dr. Matt Show if you want to guess: Is it lift the house, rubber, surly, pin, or meat love? The movie that is not actually a hallowed, hallowed Eve movie. By the way, here's Sting song Soul Cake. Awesome stuff, folks. Uh, Up next, we're going to be talking about making sense of emotion with Dr. Frank Ninavaji. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we all know that in order to avoid cavities and keep your teeth healthy, you need to brush your teeth daily, right? In order to maintain a healthy weight, you need to avoid fatty foods and exercise daily. But what if you want to stay emotionally healthy? Well, uh, Yale's associate attending uh, physician, Dr. Frank Ninavaji, he's a psychiatrist that uh, practices at um, uh, there at Yale, and we love him. We have him on the show all the time. He's an attending physician at Yale New Haven Hospital and assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine. Um, and we, we love having him on because he's, he's, A, he's enlightening, but he also helps us understand some topics that a lot of us seem to overlook. Today, we will be talking about his new book, Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. Dr. Frank Ninavaji, thanks for being with us again. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. We love having you. Now, um, it seems like to me, in fact, last hour we, we talked about the fact that for years they were saying that uh, pain is the fifth, um, uh, what do they call it, vital sign. But what I've always found, Frank, is that paying attention to people's emotions, it really, it's a, it really is an indicator, right? It's a major indicator of their well-being emotionally. I think that's right. And I would go even further in saying paying attention to one's own emotion is uh, critical, crucial, because that really comes first. And I've stressed that in the book. And that is what I kind of um, emphasize as possibly the king and queen of uh, emotions, empathy. Hmm which uh, empathy generally is understood to mean being able to sense 
and apprehend and understand and feel other people's emotions, but it begins with yourself. Because knowing yourself would actually inform knowing others and understanding others. I think that's um, very true, because to, to thine own self be true. Not sure where that originates, but I think it's found in all great religions and philosophies and systems of uh, wisdom. Yeah. No, I think it was Ham- that was in Hamlet, wasn't it, Shakespeare? Do um, thine own self be true, Hamlet. Talk, talk act about— two. Act two. Was it act two? Talk right, about— Do thine own self be true, exactly, which means do not be false. And then you know what he says? And I just—it's really um, uncanny, as they say— and the second part of that is, and that means do not be false to others. Mm. Yeah, because we do fake out or try to fake people out with our own emotions. We fake ourselves out with our own emotions. Like you, when somebody's upset and you're like, are you OK? And they're like, I'm fine. You know they're not. You sense they're not. But, but so this emotional uh, intelligence, this ability to read your own emotions and the emotion of others – it, this is this is an essential part, it seems, to living and to life, to really get the most out of life. It is. It is. And it, it is. And <clears throat> I, I make that point. And uh, for me, it's kind of a, a hidden, invisible reality that's present, ever-present, but we don't see what's already there. And my point... And the point of the book and my point in writing this for the last five years and trying to grasp it over my lifetime and seeing it over the last 43 years of clinical practice, and this is a clinical book, meaning from my experience palpably with human beings from three years old up to 85 years old, real people, it's that the emotions are really there, but they're not recognized, mm. they're not identified, they're not uncovered, and then connected to conscious awareness, conscious life. Once they are, and it's a long process, once they are, people's lives are enriched and people are empowered to be more integral to have more what I call, and now I'm writing something new, and I call it, and this is part of emotional intelligence, <clears throat> authentic integrity, authentic integrity as a prime value, and I even elevate it to a virtue, hmm. of the virtue of wholeness. Authentic of being, integrity? Yes, authentic integrity is wholeness, and approximating being an unimpaired human being, approximating because it's a journey. It's mm. a constant, consistent journey, which is never achieved, but always strived toward. That's powerful. It's uh, extremely powerful. I tremble when I think about it and feel it, feel, feel, emotion emotionally grasp it and try to live it moment to moment. Can you teach us what is the difference between um, a feeling, an emotion, a mood? Because it seems like we sometimes use them interchangeably. 
That's a, such an excellent question, because you're absolutely right, as usual, <laughs> when you pose the question, brilliant perception, insightfulness. <clears throat> there, the words emotion, feeling, affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, and mood are used interchangeably, but technically they really mean something different. There is a kind of nuanced difference, but it's a different experience. It's a different phenomenon, and, and this is the difference. <clears throat> Technically, when you really do read, quote-unquote, the literature, people who are in psychology, you know, Ph.D. psychologists, yeah. when they write, or psychiatrists, like myself, an M.D. psychiatrist, when they write, they use these words in a more precise fashion. Now, <clears throat> emotion technically denotes, means, an unconscious, extremely brief, and by that brief, I mean one twenty-fifth of a second mm. micro-expression sensation that is detectable and measurable on the face. And Paul Ekman, who was a, a Ph.D. psychologist in the 70s, 80s, 90s, wrote about this. And he wrote about it, and he characterized that there are about seven emotions. And his work is world famous. It's sort of based on what Charles Darwin, roughly in, 1972, in 1872, uh, when he kind of scientifically tried to write about uh, the expression of emotions uh, in uh, man and animals, talked about emotion as a, a sort of biological phenomenon, which is very, very important and can be measured. So Paul Ekman wrote about emotion <clears throat> as a micro-expression detectable on the face, and also, we detect it, but unconsciously. Emotion is an unconscious expression. Hmm. When, it, when that sensation, and I make this clear in the book, when the sensation of emotion reaches neurologically the brain, especially the prefrontal lobes, the prefrontal cortex of the brain, the front of the brain, it goes to various areas, and I have delineated them in the book, then it gets evaluated with meaning, and then that emotional sensation is given a meaning, it turns into a perception and that emotional perception then is called a feeling. Mm. And it's the feelings that we label as happiness, sadness, uh, <clears throat> unhappiness, etc., etc., etc. So emotion is unconscious, feeling is conscious. And, and I guess conscious also becomes more subjective? Very subjective. So happiness is an interpretation of that sensing emotion we felt. Yes, especially socially and contextually and from our experience from birth to our present chronological age. 
then the term affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, is used by psychiatrists to describe the emotional and feeling expression that appears on the face of a patient at any moment. Hmm. So if the patient is crying, we say the patient's affect appears sad. If the patient is laughing, we say the patient's affect appears happy. Hmm. Then a psychiatrist ordinarily, in terms of a psychiatric evaluation, will talk about the patient's mood. And the mood means what the patient has described to the evaluator as his or her group of feelings that have occurred over a relatively long period of time. For instance, the patient may say, I have felt sad and depressed for the last two months. Hmm. So we say the patient's mood is a mood of sadness. That's interesting. So that's, yeah. that's over time. A long period of time. So really, that's the difference between those four words: emotion, subconscious, kind of uh, un, unnoticed, not in conscious awareness. Yeah, not in conscious awareness. Feeling in conscious awareness. Yes. Effect is what we express or show on our face. Yes. Mood is the long-term description of our feelings over time. That's exactly right. Now, is tell me why any of this matters. To I mean, because you just gave very clinical uses of every term, but why would it matter for me to become to really learn to become effective at making sense of these emotions and these these feelings and affect and understanding moods? It helps the individual who knows these uh, differentiations to understand him and herself better and not misinterpret. For instance, I'll use the term burnout. That is very popular nowadays um, as a term that's used because it's so uh, popular, pervasive, and um, common. Uh, I think we talked about this last time I was on the show, and the statistic is something like 63.4% of physicians Mm-hmm. are known to have experienced uh, or are experiencing uh, occupational burnout. That's pretty critical yeah. and crucial. And the Mayo Clinic and Yale and Stanford uh, Hospital University have specific uh, programs uh, analyzing, detailing, documenting, and treating this. I have been appointed as one of the... Uh, 10 physicians on the wellness and physician engagement committee here at Yale New hmm. Haven Hospital uh, to uh, address burnout and wellness Yeah, because it's so pervasive. Now, I went to a conference two weeks ago on resilience and wellness and burnout was discussed and there were 30 Yale physicians. They were all MD physicians at Yale, highly intelligent people. And I, they weren't psychiatrists. There were only three psychiatrists out of 30. <clears throat> and I heard the term burnout 
used and possibly uh, used very loosely. A lot of them were saying, oh, uh, I think I'm burnt out, or I know, or every doctor I know is burnt out, or every doctor I've met in uh, New York City is burnt out. And, every, and, and this was sort of like, you know, when I talk about ADHD? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's as if every child in America has ADHD, and I believe <laughs> that's wrong and incorrect. Right. So I thought about this, and I've written on burnout. As a matter of fact, I have an article on psychologytoday.com on burnout. And actually, I'm trying to clarify this. <clears throat> burnout is a syndrome. If there is the syndrome of burnout, it actually means that you've experienced this mood for months and months and months, and you are impaired, as opposed to the feeling state, which is transitory, of burnout. And then it would be more correct to say, well, today I was overly exhausted and I felt sort of zoned out, so today I was burnt out. Oh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, and therefore, I am not self-identifying as a burnt-out doctor. <laughs> right. I was just tired today, overly tired. But that doesn't mean I'm labeling myself as a burnout, and now I'm going to live up to it. That's, that's I guess like, that's it, huh? That part of the key to this is becoming aware of what is my feeling, what is my long-term mood, and differentiating. Just because your child doesn't do his homework one or two days or a week or two doesn't mean your child has ADHD. Right. Just because your child loves to play doesn't mean your child is hyperkinetic. Right. You have to really examine this in great detail. Yeah, it's almost like it's the, it's a language issue, it seems like, to yeah. some degree. We don't have a deep enough vocabulary to know that there are emotions, feelings, affect, and mood. Power of babble. That's it. Confusion of tongues. Yeah. Is it um, – one of the things I know that you get into in the book is the fact that we also have to – we have to have awareness of these things. But then to some degree, we also have to start gaining the tool set – to start changing some of the feelings and reinterpreting what we're going through and maybe creating a healthier feeling for ourselves than just going with what we're feeling. I think a, a key word you used is reinterpreting. What precedes that is the word pause. One of the words in our vocabulary that I love is the word pause. Uh, First is pause. In other words, stop, pause. Pause and start to think about what you feel, think about what you're experiencing, and then calmly and quietly reevaluate your experiences. See if the labels you have put on your experiences are actually correct, accurate, if, they, if your evaluations are precise enough, are you talking about moods, are you talking about feelings, is what you're talking about simply transitory and passing, or is it long-term, is it disabling and impairing, 
is it really distressing and affecting your, in psychiatry, we use the word biopsychosocial life, mm. all aspects of your life? Or is it kind of like a fly in the ointment, which you can um, repair if you just do, you know, make a few corrections, or maybe more than just a few corrections? You have to pause and assess and reassess and then reinterpret and then start to re-gear, reorient yourself and your life. Yeah. No, I, th- I think this is why, Frank, we need you on. Uh, we're going to have you on uh, over the next three months talking more and more and more about your book because it really is uh, – it's so, I think, essential. And really, it's so deep. We need we need as many tools as we can get so we can really dive deep into this. We will have Frank again. Thank you so much, Frank, for being with us. The book is Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence, the power just of the little lesson we had of distinguishing between your emotions, your feelings, your affect, and your mood, understanding that those are all you know, different, also understanding that you have a vested interest in, in learning to become empathic and reading these differences uh, and in yourself first. Work on yourself first, right? To thine own self be true first, and then that'll help you influence others. We appreciate Dr. Frank Ninavaji, and we will continue the discussion up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you become the good in the world. Today is Halloween, my friends, and I'm sure you all have a favorite Halloween memory. And here at the studio, we do, too. One of our producers, Leanna Tan, joined with us with some of uh, you know, our other student producers to talk about their favorite Halloween memories. The day is upon us. Another day of tricks, treats, and all things haunted. You know, the traditional thing to do right now would be to start whipping out the ghost stories. I thought about telling you a nice, spooky ghost story. But I was thinking back on my history of Halloweens, and it was reconfirmed to me that I'm a scaredy cat. I remember all those times as a kid waiting for my older sisters to trick-or-treat in front of me in case anything jumped out at the doorstep, or the Halloween where my neighbor took me through a cheesy haunted house and the second I saw a skeleton, I started crying and some worker had to escort my sisters and I out a secret back way. And, of course, there was the time when all my friends snuggled up to watch a scary movie, and I slipped downstairs to read a classic literature book in the basement, all by myself instead. Needless to say, if I were to tell a ghost story, I'm pretty sure I would be scaring myself more than anyone else. If I had my way, Halloween wouldn't have scary ghost stories at all. I would put the sheet over my head, flip on the flashlight, and just invite all my friends over to reminisce in non-spooky memories. So, shh. Come close as we tell you Halloween memories. My freshman year of college, my Arabic class gave me the nickname of Party Girl when I went to 12 parties the weekend before Halloween. 12 parties in two nights. What can I say? I love Halloween and parties. By the time Halloween itself rolled around, I was pretty near out of costumes. I'd been a witch, a Barbie, Amelia Earhart, an 80s high schooler, Frida Kahlo, a superhero, and someone run over by a car. So my best friend Liberty and I decided to go as a pineapple and a strawberry on Halloween night. Easy. Simple. 
no stress. We got together and made headdresses out of green paper. I, the strawberry, had a kind of leaf crown thing. Liberty, the pineapple, had a towering monstrosity of a headdress. Think the Leaning Tower of Pisa, made of green cardstock, attached tenuously to a headband which was then taped to Lib's head. We finally got everything together, only to realize Liberty couldn't drive without opening the sunroof and sticking her leafy dome out the top. Upper leaves would blow off the headdress as we drove around, necessitating many stops in traffic to grab errant pieces that had blown out of the car. To be honest, I don't even remember what we did or where we went that Halloween night. All I remember is how much fun it was to stop traffic again and again as the great pineapple fiasco of 2014 unfolded. Halloween is one of my favorite holidays. To be single. Think about it. Holidays are the worst for those of us who do not have a significant other. During Thanksgiving, my family asks me questions like, So, can we be expecting someone else for Thanksgiving dinner? And the question at Christmas is always, Should we add someone else to the Secrets Analyst? New Year's is probably the worst. Are you bringing someone over this year, or will this be another year without fireworks? Was that fireworks or shots fired? Two Halloweens ago, I was single, and I decided to be a Tinder profile for Halloween. I was hoping to swipe a few tricks and treats around my college campus and at work. Happy Halloween! I walked around from class to class that day feeling like a boss. People were taking pictures of me. People came up to me and asked to take pictures with me. I was feeling pretty great and confident. Although I got a lot of cat calls and whistles and a few phone numbers, Hello, this is Lauren. I ended the great All Hallows Eve just how I started. Single. On the bright side, because school is in session, my family did not call and ask me if I found someone to do a couple's costume with. One of my favorite Halloween costumes of all time was my cowgirl costume. I had red cowgirl boots and a matching red cowgirl hat. That Halloween, my brother was also a cowboy with a black mustache drawn on his face. You know, the curly kind that spirals in the ends? Even my youngest baby brother was a cowboy too. My mom even made wanted posters for my brother. When he got off the bus after school that day, he found his wanted posters taped to streetlights and on our front door. They featured my brother grimly staring into the camera. The theme went well except for my sister, who had decided, very inconveniently I might add, that she wanted to be a bird. Yep, a bird. Okay, it wasn't any bird, it was a swan. Better now? Do you remember the Barbie of Swan Lake Princess movie? Well, it had just come out, so all the little girls wanted to be the Swan Lake Princess. Except that my sister wanted to be a swan, instead of the human princess. So, my mom gave in and made a swan costume. It had a felt black and white beak, angel wings with white feathers glued to them, and a plastic pink crown with feathers sticking out of it. Although I never thought about it at the time, I never realized how much effort my mom put into not only making our Halloween costumes, even the outrageous ones like a swan, but also how much effort she put into Halloween in general when we were kids. So I guess what I'm trying to say is shout out to all the moms out there who are making their kids' Halloween dreams come true. Wasn't that much nicer than hearing about children mysteriously disappearing, or zombies attacking, or ghosts haunting? (sighs) Happy Halloween, everyone. And remember, Halloween isn't just about tricks, treats, and spooky stories. It's about creating good memories. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, 
And that's my little tangent. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yes, it is that time to uh, to share with all y'all the answer to our Matt Libs game. Earlier, uh, Jeffrey and I was we were playing a game of Matt Libs where he gave me the name of six movies. Each movie, uh, five of the six movies were all real titles of scary movies, and then he snuck one in there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I had to guess which one was the real was the was the made up movie, and it just so happens I chose Surly. And I'm going to say I started to get you to second guess yourself, you and did. before you changed your mind, instead of giving it more thought, you decided that you would just cheat. No, I didn't and go cheat. look up the answer online. I didn't cheat. I already i i had <laughs> i felt like I had to go with my name because I already said Surly. So I'm kicking myself because I made one last minute change to the title of the film, and now I wish I hadn't because I feel like if I had kept it the same, yeah. you would have been foiled. Maybe. Well, okay. So what 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 was the real title? The fake film in this lineup was Surly. <laughs> Yes, the film that I or the name of the uh, that I wanted to call it was Dower. Oh, see that that would have tricked that you. would have tricked me. I would not have. But you've used the word surly <laughs> in one of your bits before, and I thought that's such a great mm. word. But you're the only one that uses it. Shouldn't have made it about clowns. Shouldn't huh? have made it about surly. Exactly, Dower. Ooh, that would have been a good one. Hey, do I have time to tell you one trick yes, that people do. are falling for that yes. you shouldn't this Halloween? Watch out! Scammers are phoning unsuspecting victims and telling them their friend or relative is in jail, but can be freed in exchange for a prepaid gift card. This is happening in Calgary, uh, and uh, a lot of people have fallen for the scam. People have lost $168,000 through the scam. So police are never going to uh, contact you about bailing out a friend, and they're not going to say that you can do so by paying a gift card. Yeah, that... So don't fall for it. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to, if you, I mean, if you're going to give a gift card, just send it to Townsend at <laughs> gmail.com. Just if you're doing that. Anyway, see, we're here to help you every way we can, folks, to make sure you're not getting ripped off this Halloween season. Make sure you go check out the movie Surly about the crazy pig, the dour pig. Clown. Oh, clown. Sorry. The dour clown. Great stuff straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy November to you. November 1st. You did it. You, you made it through October. You started another month. This is, remember, if you're thinking about life this way, it's the month of the big meal. You're going to get a really big Thanksgiving feast sometime this month. Hopefully, when you say the big meal, you don't mean like your last supper. No. Yeah, it won't be your last supper. Okay. I mean, hopefully. We don't want to We don't want to scare anybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here. Uh, the gang's here. In fact, uh, Jeff Simpson's never been happier. Post-World Series Game 6, Dodgers win. It's now evened up. We've got a Game 7 tonight, and it's, this is it, folks. 
It's a big it's a big day in L.A. L.A. They celebrated last night. What was it? Three to one victory over the Astros. Three to one. It was one zip off of a, an Astros home run for a good chunk of the game, probably until I think about the sixth yeah. inning. Yeah. And then once they boom, hit boom. the bottom of the sixth inning. Woo. Funny thing. Astros uh, had more hits, but they couldn't convert a hit to a run. That's they, right. They couldn't get the runners on the base and then get a big hit. And you know how I offered to uh, be hit by a pitch yeah, so I could get which, on base? Chase which, Utley took care of that for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Isn't he – didn't they say Chase Utley's like the leader of the most – being hit the most by a pitcher? Nineteen times he was hit during the regular season. And he's the oldest player to score a run in a World Series game for 60 years. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. That's, it's that's, just one of the many see, that statistics that they tried to fill time with. <laughs> yeah, the many meaningless statistics that they're trying to fill time with. Um, well, that's great. And all the kids had a great night. Uh, hope everything went well there. Um, in fact, we'll end up talking about it, I'm sure. We've got to get to the big headline today. New York attacked again. Uh, since 9-11, the deadliest terrorist attack with a, a man driving down a bike path, kills eight people, injures many, many others. And, uh, you know, basically claims the attack for ISIS. Right. Hmm. Well, apparently he exited the car yelling, Allah Akbar. Yeah. Started running. <sighs> uh, and by the way, used a, a, a local health, uh, what they call, home improvement store truck that he rented. Mm. And uh, so now that, you know, will forever go down in history as, uh, I guess, now the second largest terrorist attack. The sad thing, Argentine tourists were injured or, 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 or died, I believe, among the dead, plus uh, someone from Germany, a lot of uh, different nations involved. And sad, sad day. Again, this is, again, the world we live in, which is why our guest today uh, may be somebody that can spark some hope. We're going to be talking with somebody that's written a book on Abraham Lincoln and how he really is the great unifier, even of today's politics. He's the great unifier of the Republicans and the Democrats. Everybody claims him. Everybody loves him as a president. What is it about President Lincoln that makes him such a unifier? We'll be talking about that because heaven knows in our world of politics and our world of just – Complete, complete divisiveness uh, and polarity in our paradigms and our way we see the world. We need somebody we can hold up as an icon. Everybody loves him as a president, but nobody can stand him as currency. That yeah. penny, no, that I penny know. is just pesky. But it's so important. Is it? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Would you, oh, by the way, would you bend over and pick up a penny? Absolutely not. You still wouldn't, even for the even for the good luck thing. Even if it was like 100 years old, I probably still wouldn't do it. <laughs> I wouldn't take that chance, let's just say. I'm not going to bend over on the off chance that it might be a 100-old penny. Well, I know, but wouldn't you bend over just for a, a, just a little bit of luck? A wee bit of luck? No, I think a quarter is luck. Oh, wow. Boy, yeah. where have we gone? <laughs> I wouldn't bend over simply because of the fact that I may not bend back up. Right. Those cankles or grankles you've got. No, I'm sorry, not cankles. Yeah, they're not Grank- cankles. They're grankles. They're grandma's ankles. And I don't know why you need to bring those up now. It's kind of rude. Well, I mean, you would be using your ankles to not really. get back up, no, wouldn't I would, you? No, no, no. Just use it's all my back. in the legs and back. Okay. <laughs> Bringing up my grankles. You always, you always hit below the belt. Well, your grankles are below the belt. Very good point. 
Very, very good point. Uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. This is this is big news out of New York. Um, and again, uh, biggest terrorist attack since 9-11 for New York. Terry, hit us. What do we need to know about? The suspect in Tuesday's deadly truck attack in lower Manhattan is a 29-year-old from Uzbekistan. The man entered the U.S. in 2010, has lived in Ohio, Florida, and New Jersey. Law enforcement officials tell ABC News he is married, has three kids, was a registered uh, statutory agent for two Ohio-based trucking companies, which is Hmm. an odd fact. The man drove a rented truck down a bike path Tuesday afternoon, killing eight and injuring more than a dozen people. If the prices stay uh, consistent for that truck, he paid 20 bucks for it. He then uh, jumped out of his truck, ran up and down the highway waving a pellet gun and a paintball gun and shouting, God is great, in Arabic before he was shot in the abdomen by officers. He remains in critical condition. There's a note in the car claiming he did this for ISIS. The yeah. uh, people investigating feel like he's inspired, not necessarily an agent of type of situation. Right. So, you know, motivated by things he's seen rather than actually being part of ISIS. And now we're going to have a ban on paint guns and pellet guns. That's, yeah. Or I mean, pe- that's, maybe there's a conversation. I don't know. No, that's just where everyone goes. And, yeah. and rental trucks. From, you know, home improvement stores. So don't move. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The question of whether President Trump would try and unite the country at a time of attack like President George W. Bush did on 9 11 right. or, you know, revert to campaign Trump yeah. was answered this morning as he uh, lashed out at Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer for suspected, uh, he blamed them for the suspected New York City terrorist entry into the U.S. The terrorists came into our country through what is called the Diversity Visa Lottery Program, a Chuck Schumer beauty. No boy. I want merit-based, the president wrote on Twitter. Schumer later released a statement responding to the president. He goes, I've always believed and continue to believe that immigration is good for America. The president was watching a segment on Fox and Friends where they were talking about this and then tweeted about it. And, you know, it's so, how we do things now. Yeah. So, so did Schumer write that legislation? It was something he sponsored and put on a uh, bill in 2010. And and I guess the assumption is if we use a merit-based approach, no one that has ever been brought to the United States because of a merit-based approach would ever have done something like this? Um, apparently. Okay. Just checking. I mean, there have been mass murderers that were in the United States totally legally which sure. and actually have made a lot of money for the United States, like the, the shooter in Vegas. Mm-hmm. He seemed to have some merit until he started shooting everybody. Right. Okay, just checking. Um, Uber confirmed late Tuesday evening that the uh, terror suspect is a uh, driver for them. Oh. And uh, they're horrified by this senseless act of violence. That kind of a press release was put out, but yeah, he worked for Uber. That's interesting. Uber's really getting ahead of the story. Well, like they jumped on that fast. Yeah, it's not really what you want to no, as a marketing angle. You don't want that to come up later. Yeah. In other news, Tuesday's hearing by the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism is the first of three sessions with Google, Facebook, and Twitter representatives. The tech companies were pressed on their ability to prevent bad actors from taking advantage of their platforms through ads and regular posts. Uh, Seth uh, Figerman and Dylan Byers both report on this. Two more hearings on Wednesday. That was... Uh, Senator John Kennedy, Louisiana Republican, said in the hearing, I'm very proud that the three companies here uh, presenting here today are American companies, and I think you do an enormous good, but your power sometimes scares me, he says. Hmm. And uh, there was some discussion on the ad. A lot of the stuff, the uh, the posts they were presenting weren't ads. They were okay. just people who signed up for the service, and like you and me, we can all just post on Facebook. Oh, 
just they were able to use methods to get that out there and spread it far and wide. And it's, you know, it's fake but, news. Type stuff. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. So it wasn't like they bought an ad and presented yeah. the stuff, but they put out their own posts. Facebook doesn't want to stop people from posting to the service. No. So how do you stop someone who has nefarious ends in mind? It's just just like terrorism. Yeah. I can't stand bad acting. Can ruin a good movie, you know? It's a really good point. The website Recode, one of the reporters was in the room, and he goes, Main takeaway from tech hearing so far, your congressional representatives, both Dems and GOP, have no idea how social media works. It's so true. It's kind of a... I know. So we're we're trying to create policy with people that... You know, that you know, that aren't hip and cool. They just don't know they don't yeah. know how to they don't know how to move fr- the peeps. And from questioning you weren't quite sure what the goal of the meeting was. Yeah. Are we here to shame them? Are we here to find out information? Or we it, everyone it, had a different end in mind. But isn't that the really the method of most meetings? You're sitting there just trying to figure out why we're doing I this. I think the explanation of most of the meetings is the camera. That's the reason Ah, for the meeting. And finally, a Michigan financial advisor who shares the same name as the former member of uh, President Donald Trump's campaign team caught up in the investigation of Russian meddling in the 2016 elections has been trying to sort out a case of mistaken identity. Hmm. George Papadopoulos identified himself on Twitter as a certified public accountant who offers financial advice. On Monday, it was revealed that the former foreign policy advisor to Trump, also named George Papadopoulos, pled guilty to lying to the FBI. Since then, the accountant has been busy on Twitter, adamantly <laughs> stating that he is not the same person who has had. He oh, has no association guy. with Trump. He also uh, bought, brought a sense of humor to the situation, tweeting, "Buy low, sell high," because he's a financial advisor. <laughs> right. And he also says, "Never lie to the FBI." That's a great the, for the other guy. That's right. Put also that on a meme. Also, George Papadopoulos, as of yesterday, well, probably before yesterday, if you put that in, you get the father from the TV show Webster, because that was his name. Oh. <laughs> By the way, what a great name, Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos. I mean, I mean, George Bush is a fun name to say, but George Papadopoulos. Yeah, it just kind of pops. Yeah, it makes you feel like you're smarter. Or it sounds like you should be selling pizza. Really, Papadopoulos. Hmm, that sounds like a good pizza pie. I don't know if you guys know this. Seven percent of me is Italian Greek. You have mentioned this. I think this is the third day in a row. I'm proud of it. You're because, proud of your Italian roots? Yeah, I, I, I spit in a cup, and my ancestry genetic DNA test says I'm pretty much a white Anglo uh, Scandinavian person, except mm. for 7% might be or is Italian Greek. We don't know if it's Greek you're, or Italian, but. You're just like the TV commercial where the guy's like, My whole family's Irish. Then he spits in a cup and he goes, and he's like wearing a kilt. He's like, We're Scottish now. And, and I, okay. <laughs> that's me, exactly. Kilt, you and know that's what I mean. why I have that. That's why I have that really nice olive skin. Yeah. Even <laughs> smells a little olivey. Really? Wow. Yeah, because like, we went to Olive Garden. Again. Because that's what you do when you're. We get seven percent Italian Greek. You get in touch with your Which roots. Is what I am is I really am proud of it. That's pretty neat. Now I just got to go back and find that person. What are you proud of? I'm a, I'm proud of my heritage. You don't know anything about it. How can you be proud of something you don't know? No, yeah, yeah. No, I know seven percent. Well, I, that's it. That's like the only information you know. And you're already no, proud. Greek, Greek, Italian, Mediterranean area. Right. But you're proud By the of way, this like line on a piece of no, paper. No, but now right? everything I've ever learned about that area is starting oh. to come back to me. Oh, okay. Um, right. It's one of the healthiest. It's one of the blue, 
health zones. Mm. A lot of people live really long yeah, lives. The Mediterranean there. diet is really clean. Yeah. yeah. Using clean. your logic, I yeah. really hope that I have Mexican heritage because I would be eating Mexican food every day. But I'm pretty sure you don't. You're pretty sure? Yeah. Hmm. Habla español? No. Ooh, really which good. way are you going to take that? Yeah, that was lucky. That was a <laughs> lucky one. It's uh it's just, it's just, I don't want to brag. I just sense you guys are a little jealous that I know just, more about my Just questioning motivations, that's all. We're not, it's different. We're not jealous. I think we're offended by the offensive uh, garlic breath that you've got this morning. <laughs> Ga- yeah. By the way... And like, I, I'm overwhelmingly Irish, but you don't hear me talking about it. I know, but so I, don't, just, I don't know why. Just saying. Well, I, I'm well, kind of okay with it. I don't need to, like, you know, I don't know why you're overcompensate so, well, you've or got, anything. You've got haggis breath. Is that what that is? Yeah. Yeah, it smells. It's hard to play. Our little studio has a really fine odor to it. Hey, uh, so last night, mm. I, my son brought up a really interesting point. Oh, wow. This okay. was child child do, number six. Do tell. He said he has never carved a pumpkin. Mm. Neither had I until just the other day. It was great. Yeah. My first three kids, we carved a pumpkin every year. Mm. So you didn't, you've just given up on Halloween. Yeah. How did he feel about that? He apparently sad. Did he go carve a pumpkin? And then I his... walked up on our steps for the first time, and I saw that we had a carved pumpkin on our steps. And? And I'm like, who what? carved this pumpkin? Were you full of him. the Halloween spirit? It wasn't him. It was my my oldest son had carved a pumpkin on a date. Well, you can't really text well, and tweet after you've you know reached into a pumpkin and pulled out all the pumpkin gets. Yeah. In fact, I saw a guy doing a drive-by pumpkin carving. <gasps> How does... That he work. was he was carving he was emptying the guts of a pumpkin out hmm. in a parking lot. Well, it's biodegradable. So while he was driving, as he's gutting a pumpkin. God, what's worse, texting while driving or carving a pumpkin while driving? He he had pulled over to gut it, but I'm sitting there thinking, oh sure, you leave the guts in my park. Eh, don't eh me. That there's, was my park. There's like birds. They'll, they'll biodegradable. Birds. Yeah, Hold so, it. it's like it's styrofoam. Pumpkin guts. So anything that's that is like the worst. <laughs> it's biodegradable. Yeah. What's I wrong? mean, a lot of things are biodegradable that you don't want just left in the park. Well, some of that's just marketing spin. This stuff's actually biodegradable. Within a few days, it'll just be a you know just so gross. we could just gut anything in the parking it, it lot would of our do, park. It would do wonders for your lawn. Depends on your neighborhood. That's the problem. <laughs> I already have a dog park in my neighborhood. By yeah. the way, Uh-oh. also would do wonders. Well, maybe not. Again, I don't want to get down on people because I could have a dog someday. Could, possibly. Sure. Um, drove by the dog park, packed. Hmm. Our dog on park Halloween? is packed. Wow. Yeah, every day. Well, Was it doggy trick-or-treating or something? It was doggy dress-up day. Barker. Oh. Lots of dogs wearing costumes. Wow. Like a barker treat? Yeah, it was a bark and treat. Okay, cool. It was a sniff bark and treat. Well, yeah, yeah. That's just given. They, uh, But they're dressing their dogs up. Yeah, it's kind of... Different. It's hard enough to get your kid to keep their costume on. But can you imagine what's going through the dog's head? He's like, what am I doing? Just give me a dog treat. Why couldn't I have a master <laughs> that cares less? What's going on? Why am I a clown today? Yeah. It was. I don't need the vest, but you know. <laughs> it was such an interest. I'm like, you really got dog ears for your dog? And then how do you keep dog ears on your dog? Just have a tolerant dog. The dog is now a bunny. Well, it's, it's, it's the joy of Halloween. You get to be somebody else. Really? 
Just, Snoop Dogg. It's called no, it's George. It's George well, Clinton. I know he sampled this. George Clinton is uh, the long lost brother of Bill Clinton. Right? Wrong. Okay, just checking. By the way, it's it's uh, extra mile day. This is the day that uh, you go the extra mile. Mm. The Extra Mile Foundation was founded in nineteen or in two thousand nine as a nonprofit organization to promote action and positive attitudes. It sounds like a bother. I know, but that's because you're a cynic. Is that what it is? If you weren't a cynic, you would think this is a great opportunity but, to in, to be encouraged to walk all uh, different, you know, paths of life. What is the end see... result of the extra effort? It, well, let's find out tonight in Game 7. Yeah. See, that just sounds like a bunch of opportunities lost. That's what Game 7 sounds like. <laughs> oh, see, that, that is the cynic in you. Yeah. This is where you get to, like, stretch your potential, try to do more, try to hmm. go the extra mile in Why didn't life, you just do become the, what you really want to become. Could you have done, like, all the days previous to the day you decided to do the extra? Yeah. Could you have just done the minimum and achieved the extra without actually doing the extra? Possibly. Did you just slack off before? Is yeah, that what but, this is? Well, maybe this is the catch-up day for the slacker. Okay. Can I can I give you an example of the take ex- the next step for the average Oh. Non-slacker. So after Game Six last night, the starting pitcher on the Houston Astros team tonight for that's going to start tonight, yeah, went out to the field and started warming up with his catcher last night after the game. Wow. Well, he's that's gonna be going to be sore if he warms up all That's going the night. extra mile. Yeah, it is. That really is. Lottery's sending a message. He wants to get he wants to get the feel of the stadium and the energy of the peeps. But his heart. after Game 4, Kershaw, well, whatever game he was going to pitch in the next day, he went out the night that they won, went on to the mound of the Houston Astros, and uh, picked up the ball, kind of got a sense for things. You know, but yeah. they ended up losing get that Game 5. By the way, Justin Verlanders, is it Justin? That guy is can a pitch. flipping missile shooter. He's he amazing. Pitch. Yeah. He, and then you just carry him a little too long. And then they get three, two runs. So maybe there was some wisdom behind uh, Dave Roberts' decision to pull the Dodgers starting pitcher so yeah. early. Even though he got booed. He did. Because that's the same strategy that has lost them a couple of games. Yeah. And because it, their bullpen has just pooped. Yeah. <laughs> Tonight's game number seven. You're not going to want to miss it. Dodgers uh, playing the Astros. And I think it's going to be a bomb fest. Really? Remember, every, it's pretty runs? much every other game, they have a big blowout, a slowdown. Last night was the slowdown game. Tonight's the blowout game. Ooh. Let's say 11 innings. 11 innings. Why not 12? Ooh, let's not push it, because I've got to <laughs> get up early tomorrow morning. Uh, we got a lot to cover, folks. Up next, we're going to be talking about Abraham Lincoln. He's an icon both parties agree on. And uh, let's go figure out why, because maybe there's some magic we could actually connect and, and maybe pull a lot of our politics out of the funk. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world. Abraham Lincoln is an icon of every American, it seems like, regardless of their associations with the Republican or the Democratic parties. And why is this the case? Well, here to speak with us today is Dr. Sean Perry Giles, the author of the book Memories of Lincoln and the Splintering of American Political Thought. Dr. Perry Giles and her co-author analyzed the writings of people who knew Lincoln personally and analyzed the rhetorical power of his public messages. Uh, Dr. Sean Perry Giles, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. This, um, to me, there's something... 
I think we there, actually there's a lot that we can learn from Abraham Lincoln. Why is he such, uh, I guess, such an iconic unifying figure for American politics? Well, I think there are many reasons, but uh, you know, one of one of it is that you know he led the country through you know a very divisive civil war and then was assassinated on the heels of it. But I think. One of the things that we look at within the project is the ways in which those who knew him remembered him, and much of what we know about Lincoln or think about Lincoln is based on those memories, given that he didn't leave a diary. We have his speeches. Um, we have some letters, but the this kind of industry of reminiscences was so large at that time that it, that it, those memories seep into scholarship, seep into kind of public memory of him. Hmm. Is it, well, I mean, that, that really actually is, I think, even more impressive in a way, right? Because now we hear about the presidents today that are going to sculpt their history, but it sounds like he just kind of dropped everything. I mean, he died, but it, the history was dropped, and then it was everybody that knew him and liked him, uh, or didn't like him, I guess, but it became a very positive history, didn't it? It was positive, but it also was very divisive. Was it? So, you know, he... You know, at that time, presidents did not seek the office. It's hard for us to think about that now, but they, they did not campaign. on. If they did, it was behind the scenes, and they had surrogates who did so. So this idea of putting out even campaign biographies had been around for a couple of decades, but they are always perceived to be written by somebody else. So there were a lot of biographies that came out, you know, when he was being considered for the presidency, but he was not really – that connected with those. He, there's one that he's alleged to helped with more than others. But then as soon as he died, that, that, that genre of reminiscences was pretty powerful at, at that time, and it was linked more to, like, wartime memories. But people – and that's what's so, I think, really interesting about the memories. It wasn't just, you know, generals and judges and, you know, politicians who remembered him, but also the people who knew him as a child, hmm. the people who knew him when he would hang out at the country store. And so it created this really much more um, mosaic picture of him as this kind of great leader, but also this kind of mortal man. Wow. And yeah, because that's what you pick up is a little bit more of his humanity, even his struggles and family struggles with, you know, mental illness. And, his, and I mean, he, he just seems so human. And that's, you know, I think that's what's so endearing about him that, that, you know, Republicans and Democrats alike can unite on is that we get a kind of a full picture of him. There's certainly the, the marbleized Lincoln that you see on the mall in the Lincoln Memorial, and even that was controversial, but th- that he was portrayed in that way. But we get a real picture of the struggles that he had even as president, before president, and I think most people can identify with them. And he still persevered in spite of a lot of struggles and ushered the country through a very difficult time. You you bring up um, uh, your work, and a lot of your work, it seems like it's it's how we talk about them. It's how it's our it's it's how we reminisce and the genre of reminisce reminiscences. I don't know how you say that. Um, but you one of the things that you also bring up, like in, in our present day, is every president seems to kind of pick and choose their history of Lincoln that they want to focus on. Well, he became and it was, you know, the memories at the time were not all just 
um, glowing. There are people, and that, that's why they were controversial, because at the time, people thought, well, if we're going to remember a martyred president, we only have to remember the positive things and to kind of exalt him. But people would come forward and remember things that we would see today as trashy. It was kind of the National Enquirer kind of memories at times, and others were, you know, published in literary magazines. So they would remember him as telling kind of raunchy stories and being kind of impolite to women or, you know, he would sneak out of of windows during a a trial because he didn't want to be involved in in the case anymore. So we get the kind of less than positive side of him as well as the kind of glowing side of him. So it became also partisan at times. So the Democrats and Republicans, even those who knew him, would try to use him during the Reconstruction era to unify the country or to prove that the the North was, uh, you know, on the right side and the South was not. And that kind of partisan memory pulled through after the reminiscence generation died out. And the biggest dispute that we came upon was between, um, between Franklin Roosevelt and Herbert Hoover one a Democrat, one a Republican. And the big split there that I think we still see today is partisan in the sense that is Lincoln remembered for his commonness or his self-made rise? Mm. Uh, Republicans tended to want to buy into the self-made rise and his that he rose above his commonness, that he became successful in spite of it. And Democrats wanted to talk about him more as that, that he was successful because he was common. And so FB, FDR drew on, on his commonness and said Lincoln would want to help the, the common people and the government, therefore, should help them. Hoover would argue the opposite and said, no, we do not, the government should not help the people. They have to do it on their own and rise on their own. And that just kind of crystallized a lot of the divisions between the two parties. And, you know, I think we can still see some of that remnant today. So it's like there is still a unifying link and that pulls people together, but there's also very much a partisan one as well. Interesting. Is it, do you sense, will there be the ability, I mean, because it almost seems like um, the way this was created as a mosaic, uh, it came from so many other sources that maybe weren't as, or maybe they were as divided. Do, do you think it's it's uh, that future presidents and even the current living presidents, uh, past presidents, are, are they going to be able to put together as kind of a as as a a vision of who they are, a mosaic of who they are that might down the road be able to be picked up by in a bipartisan way? Well, and I think there's something at the time about reminiscences. I mean, they they were so pervasive. They were published in you know, penny presses that were more affordable. They were published in books. They were published in literary magazines. People gave speeches about them. They're, they're just and the, the press at that time, if there was something was published, say, in Springfield, Illinois, it would be picked up in the New York newspaper. So they just widely circulated, and there was people would scrapbook the memories of Lincoln. If you go to the Lincoln Library in Springfield, they just have stacks of scrapbooks of just Lincoln memories that were put together by people because I think at that time they realized what they were doing was really, you know, kind of shaping. They really had this mission of shaping how uh, the future generations would understand Lincoln and understand, you know, the gravity of the, the war that they had just come through. So, you know, there's something at the moment 
about reminiscences and the ways in which publishing worked, you know, you wonder whether it would catch on the way that it does now. Um, the other dividing point is what should we remember about presidents? Hmm. And presidents want to shape their own legacy. Lincoln did, you know, had an ability to do that through his speeches, but now presidents write books and memoirs and and they try to shape their legacy. They want to be remembered for their public lives and oftentimes want to block access to the private. And that was controversial at that time. Many did not think that the president, we should know about the private life of the president, and candidates now still want to block us from knowing especially the seedy parts or the less uh, positive parts of their past. But I do still think there's an interest in the private life of the president. You look at Kennedy or, or mm. figures like that, and – you know, so I think it's possible that there will be something similar, but there was, I think, a lot of forces that came together that made them even more powerful for Lincoln. Yeah, absolutely. Is that, uh, is, is, I guess, is that why we, we maybe don't hear as many negative things about uh, Lincoln? I had never heard that he, that he, you know, snuck out of court cases or whatever. Um, but why is it that he, is it just that we long to adore somebody? We just need somebody to to really hold up as an icon? Or why is it that we don't hear more of the negative stuff? I think we do. I mean, I think we do want to, I don't know. I mean, there's so much animosity towards our political leaders on all sides, you know, so I don't know. I don't know that, you know, we really believe that there are those figures that we can really, um, that, I mean, I think we recognize that any leader has flaws, but I think there is this ideal that, you know, we want to hold them up and then we want some leaders to be, you know, above this kind of, um, you know, kind of seedy past, difficult life. But on the other hand, we're really drawn to it. So it's, it's this, I think it's the same notion that if you're passing through the grocery store line, you still are drawn to the National Enquirer. You may not buy it, but you yeah. may read the headlines. And so just as we kind of don't want to know it, we also are drawn to it. And that the reminiscence has played on that piece of it. So, so much, you know, so much of those were about people who knew him before he became famous. And it wasn't just, you know, like in a eulogy, you're going to remember the grants. You're going to remember the larger um, things about people that made them extra special. But the reminiscence was like, it may just be simply somebody riding on horseback with him, and Lincoln sees, you know, an animal in distress and gets off his horse and helps the animal. You know, and it's, that's, it may be a paragraph story. It's hmm. just like the mundane of things that just kind of capture the life, you know, of someone who's passed. And yeah. it just makes it a unique kind of genre. It's interesting, like with President Clinton, they they sculpted a really interesting image of him of kind of a, right. de- a man destined came from Hope Arkansas and single mom. I mean, it was you really can build the story by using the reminiscences of of the childhood friends and all of that. How have you seen uh, kind of the more of the the more current presidents, President Trump, President Obama? How did they uh, use Lincoln to further their position? Well. You know, I, we talk in the book in the last chapter about more contemporary presidents, and Obama tended to draw more on Lincoln as this kind of fragile, mortal man. So he, there's a point in the 2012 uh, acceptance speech when he was running for re-election where he talks about, you know, the struggles that the country had been through and how he came to understand um, Lincoln in the sense of why he 
made made the allegedly made the comment that he oftentimes went to his knees because he had no place else to go. Mm. And so it showed Link or Obama's drawing on that kind of fragility and that the difficulty and the, the weightiness of the office, as opposed to Romney during the same election, went to this kind of exalted figure. As Lincoln is this great man, this great thinker, this great leader. You know, it's just drawing on different different hmm. images of it. Yeah, of him, his memory. Does President uh, Trump? I mean, I know. Um... He one time was was asked if he could be a unifier like Abraham Lincoln because of the phrase uh, malice toward none, charity for all. How how is Trump uh, used or seen Abraham Lincoln in his language? Well, Trump, we write about this in a in an article, but the Trump was asked in a famous interview uh, by Woodward whether or not he was this if he could be a unifying figure and it was early in the campaign and you know that he did acknowledge that that's probably one president he may not be able to exceed <laughs> in terms of effectiveness yeah i think he suggested he would exceed all others but at the same time he pivoted pretty quickly in that same article interview to talk about how he's kind of um, tends to be less a unifier and draw upon the rage of the American people who are fed up with how things are working in Washington. So mm. he seemed much more interested in tapping into that part of his leadership. And in other cases, he's really kind of um, paid tribute to Jackson and Jackson's memory and more of his populist memory. And and he made the comment, some may remember, about had Jackson been president at that time, there would have never been a civil war, which is a, kind of an implicit critique of Lincoln. Right. By saying you know, Lincoln Bad leadership. is somehow responsible. Yeah. Um, do you, as somebody that's been, you know, totally, you know, immersed in this, what what are some stories that stand out for you about who the real Lincoln is? I think, you know, I think I'm also drawn to, you know, I think there is something compelling to really, if, I mean, I suppose we don't make a judgment on this in the book, yeah. but I think I'm, I'm kind of drawn to this idea, to the argument that someone who becomes successful that owes it's not so much that he's escaping his past as part of his past. It is, you know, and the argument was made that he, he was great because of his commonness, because he was always rooted within the common people, and he knew and never forgot them. You know, it's like other people by the people. He was forever, that shaped his life forever. So I would probably be one, if I just talk about it, my own views about it would be his commonness helped define him. And he's great. He became great because of it. Others would argue it's, you know, a constraint and you need to rise above it. So I was oftentimes drawn to these stories where he would be in a position to exact revenge after, as the war came to an end, you know, he could have back, you know, he could have made sure every, all the generals from the, the South were arrested and imprisoned and paraded them uh, about to humiliate them, but he didn't. And there were stories of how he let Lee just let him ride away, and stories of how when youth, you know, some of the soldiers from the South were caught and court martialed, he was known to pardon them. He was very strict, apparently, when it came to the slave 
the people who were slave owners and the people who were slave traders, and that he showed no mercy. But when it came to the, the, the people who were fighting that just came off the farms, he tended to show greater mercy towards them. And I think those stories about him wrestling with these kind of moral dilemmas at a, a very deeply person, personal level and has struggled through them, I think, are the ones that kind of stay with me most. Yeah, beautiful and beautiful stuff. Well, Sean, we appreciate you and your great work. Uh, Sean Perry Giles um, is, a, again, uh, she's the director of the University of Maryland Center for Political Communication and Civic Leadership, and also um, the the great, really, when you think about it, author of uh, of of a book about Lincoln, Memories of Lincoln and the Splintering of the American Political Thought. It really is powerful to be able to go back and look at these iconic leaders. There is something that we all can appreciate in, in, each, uh, in each of our leaders if, if we're willing to look for it. Up next, we're going to do a little Coach's Corner and carry on that discussion about uh, what are you willing to see in another and are we making too much stuff up? This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. you boy you too stupid to do what your coach tells you because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner Play ball. welcome back friends you know isn't it interesting that uh, you can see anything you want to see in history and you can hear any anything you want to hear it really is uh it's it's the attribution error we can basically make anything we can attribute any meaning to anything. That is the neat thing about being a human being. It's also, if you're not careful, it's it really is the beginning of uh, disillusionment and a bunch of manipulation. But we do it. And I guess part of it is it's one thing when it becomes part of the political world. It's another thing when we are just doing it to each other. Remember, we, we negatively interpret each other because it serves us. Somehow we feel, I guess, safer if I can think of you as a dangerous person, then um, necessarily thinking you of you as a safe person. So the minute you violated any trust with me, my, my tendency will be to interpret what you do, who you are negatively. I won't look for all the data you bring to the equation. I'll only look for the negative data. Every one of us does this. And uh, so the, the example I always give is if you go to the um, – if you are bit by a snake in the garden – then the next time you go back to the garden, you are not looking for tomatoes. You are not looking for beautiful roses. You are looking for snakes. If you see the garden hose, guess what it is to you? It's a snake. If you see the rake in the middle of the garden, what is it? It's a snake. Anything that can hurt you or anything that you see would be tainted by the history of low trust. And so when we have a Lincoln, uh, and what an interesting way to get the history of Lincoln is from the people that knew him as a child, the people that saw a little you know story here, a little story there. So a lot of his stories add up to be very, very positive. And you know, when the majority of the stories are positive and the and there's fewer negative uh, interpretations of the person, in the end, the outcome will probably be fairly positive. And we do it. We do it with Lincoln. And it's interesting, too, how our leaders pick and choose. You know, they, they pick and choose the parts of history that, that they want to replicate. But think about it in your case. How do you want to be remembered? And and what what are the remnants, using our last guest's words, Sean's words, 
that, that will make up your life? What are the stories that will be your part of your mosaic? And do those matter to you? Do you know overall what you want the mosaic of your life to be? Can you imagine? He had no idea he was going to be shot that night. Lincoln didn't. And yet he had enough mosaic uh, and enough stories of the positive sort that created a pretty powerful, iconic person. Not perfect, apparently. Apparently he tried to sneak out of his court hearings (laughs) as an attorney. It's kind of funny. Who knew about that? Anyway, uh, interesting stuff. And again, when if if we put a if we put a really big spotlight on every one of us, mo- most of us would probably not make it through in a very perfect, clean way. So we also have to be careful of that. But think about it: you get to make up your life. You also get to interpret how others are seen, and um, be careful that you're not overly uh, being creative in how you make up somebody. <laughs> Uh, there are people, I think, in our world, even in our political world, that uh, I think we just keep only looking at the one thing we like and maybe overlooking other parts. But let's try to also see people as wholes. They've got a whole life, right? They don't. They they have the good, the bad, and the ugly. And let's not pretend that everything is always just perfect and rosy. And let's not make sure. Let's not make everything skewed negative. That's why I think there's such an argument going on about fake news. Because, you know, President Trump would think everybody's only pointing out the negative and there are some positive things that are happening and they're being done in a way that maybe isn't – they're not always as positive as they could be. So there is a way that we all can be right here, right? There's not only one right and one wrong. Anyway, a little Coach's Corner for you, hopefully uh, helping us all be a little bit better in how we interpret and see the world. We will continue the journey when we come back. We're going to be talking about lessons from Halloween. Uh, we're going we're gonna to gather the good buddies here and figure out what they learned from their kids. How much candy did they actually steal from their children? And uh, did anybody gain weight? This is the Matt Townsend Show, a recap of Halloween. As we like to do on the show, we, we always like to do a post-mortem. Uh, A a little lesson learned after Halloween so we can document these things, make sure next year it goes even better. I uh, my biggest learning is that I've got to go spend more time at the dog park Hmm. to celebrate the great work and workmanship of so many dog owners who somehow got their dog to wear a costume. Mm. That's that's my big takeaway. I learned three things. What did you learn? First of all, uh. Don't buy a giant bag of the chocolate candies because when inevitably not enough trick-or-treaters show up, you're not tempted by all this chocolate. We bought Ah. instead the Costco-sized bag of like the fruity candies like Skittles and gummy bears and Sour Patch Kids. I'm not as tempted by those. So that's that's a great lesson number one. Lesson number two, don't trust your three-year-old to select her own full-size candy bar from the bucket because she will choose the wrong one, which in this case was Three Musketeers. I mean, the assumption there is that there is a right one or a wrong one, but... What there would have is been definitely the correct anything but the three musketeers. Oh, wow. Nobody <laughs> chooses the three musketeers. And then lesson number three: uh, don't uh, leave your garage door open with the lights on and the uh, door unlocked. Why? Because I woke up to that this morning and it freaked me out. Did you? You left your garage door open 
the garage door itself, yeah. and then the door wow. going into the, into the house was unlocked, and the lights in the garage were on. So your advice is batten down the hatches. Yes. Gotcha. That's a great lesson. Yeah. I have neighbors that call me and say, you left your garage door open. Mm. You need to get some neighbors like that. Just saying. Okay, Terry, what did you learn? My lesson is if you want to get through a 400-piece bag of candy, yeah, handfuls, starting at like 6.30. By 8.30, you're in bed. Not in bed, but you know, everything's, you know, you, you shut off the lights. Eight, you just gave a big yeah, handful. It was, it was like it. five, six pieces at a time. Wow. We went trick-or-treating at it's the good. wrong house, I guess. I was just like, you yeah. know, I want to be part, but not like for the whole evening. I have things to do. What, what did you learn about, did you wear a costume finally? No. You wore no costume. Either did I, but I felt really bad the about door. it. Uh, why did you feel bad? Because everybody, everywhere we went, they were wearing costumes. I like, why couldn't I just wear something? You're part of the social contract that would hand out candy. No, I was out. Just, on, I went out with my grandchild. Well, you're just the the adult walking around. You're not. You don't have to dress yeah. up. You can if you want to. And By have the fun, way, but... a big lesson. Hmm. Big lesson. Be the people. Be the people that have hmm? that have fryers and make scones. Be those people. It's so weird. People set up camp in their driveways. Like, those, what are you but doing? Those people made my night. Yeah, we had a fire. We had a fire stuff. in our front yard. No, but like, did you make scones? No. Yeah, these guys were frying yeah. scones, and we knew them, and that was fun. And they were giving them out. Yeah. Wow. It was so, so nice. So it's more than just you know a quick flyby. You yeah. stop and you visit. You, you talk. hang out for a few minutes. Yeah. And then they actually had candy there, but nobody would take their candy because they wanted a scone. Absolutely. Yeah. So they were making scones. It was the best night. That. And if you're social, and again, I'm not social. Yeah. But uh, that's a really good idea if you're social. Let's get social. Mm. Social. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't sound the same. No. Lessons from Halloween, folks. Uh, you know, ho- hopefully you go take your own postmortem and go. Uh, mo- that sounds. So bad. if you want to finish early, <laughs> handfuls of candy. Just handfuls get rid of, of it candy. and leave. Or keep the candy, and then you can eat it over time, or just buy candy that you'll never eat, like Jeff taught us. All these great lessons coming from the Matt Townsend Show. Mark them down. Put them on your calendar next year. That way you won't make the same mistakes we did. Lots of fun. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.